0: This is Skywave Audio Theatre. I'm Norman Gilliland. Clarence Mulford created Hopalong Cassidy in 1904 while he was living in Freiburg, Maine. Cassidy spun off a bunch of short stories and 28 novels. Early on, Hopalong was a rough, dangerous character with a wooden leg, whence cometh the nickname. The radio and feature film and comic book stories took on a life of their own, And beginning in 1935, Hopalong Cassidy and William Boyd were one and the same, a respectable sarsaparilla-drinking hero. William Boyd took a big financial gamble to buy the rights to his 66 popular films. It was a gamble that paid off big time, beginning on June 24, 1949, when the films debuted on TV. Hopalong Cassidy was different from other westerns in that the episodes were so far as I've always heard mysteries and that's the case this week in an episode called The Red Death from April 16th 1950
1: It's Hopalong Cassidy With action and suspense out of the old west comes the most famous hero of them all Hopalong Cassidy Starring William Boyd. The Ring of the Silver Spurs heralds the most amazing man ever to ride the prairies of the early west, Hopalong Cassidy. This famous hero thrills his 60 million fans with action and dangerous adventure. In the role of Hopalong Cassidy is the popular star of the motion picture series, William Boyd. And appearing as that laughable old character, California, is Andy Clyde. Now to our story, The Red Death. (laughs) to make even for a friend like Kit Kavanaugh, south from the cool rolling hills of the Bar 20 to the Mesa country, from a land marked with place names like Peepsite and Deadwood, to the Alkali Desert still carrying the stamp of the Spaniards, to the Arena de la Muerte, the Desert of Death, to Alta Mesa, and to the Rio Andiendo, the mysterious stream which suddenly vanishes underneath the ground.
2: Well, California. Well, Hoppy.
1: That's it ahead. That's
2: what ahead? The Rio Andiendo. The Earth. Uh, the disappearing river. It drops under the ground right there and never shows up again. Conchor nasty of considering the country to the south, 120 miles of the gall-blamish, dry, buzzard-infested stretch of desert beside side of Hades. <laughs> How do you feel? Sore feet. Sore seat and a powerful thirst. <laughs> Well, we'll be down at Kit's Ranch in a day or two. If we ain't buzzard bait by then, uh, which way you reckon we're going to push them cattle of his? Right up through the desert last year. I know it, I know it. It's times like this when I that I should have retired ten years ago. If I'd had the brains of a jackass, <laughs> I... <laughs> now, nah, don't underrate yourself. You're smarter than any jackass I ever knew. Well, there's a nice ride. And it up. won't be much of a trick pushing 500 head up the arena. All right, Hoppy. Just do me one favor. You ride back in the dragon, keep an eye out for straggling doggies. If you see one flatten its face in that alkali dust, just handle it gentle. Of course, it will be me. Ah, <laughs> right, come on. Let's get down to the stream and fill up our canteen. It'll be dark in a few minutes. We can cool off down there and hit the desert after sundown. <sighs> What's that? Shots over there. Come on. No use, California. He's gone. Did you get a look at his horse? Ah, too dark. That critter was fast as a streak. Hey, uh, what you picking up there in the trail? Oh, nothing. Where'd the shots come from? Down there by the stream.
1: Come on, let's take a look.
2: Uh, probably someone fighting at a jackrabbit. Yeah? Then why'd he ride off like a poppy with that? Well, that's a good question. Wait, hold it. Huh? Look. You know, against that rock over there, next to the water. You're right. It weren't a jackrabbit. Come on. Well, I'll be... Poppy. A man. Yeah, but look at him. Red. He's red as a beet. Clothes, his face, everything. Yeah, and he's not only red, he's dead.
1: It's two days now since the shots and the fleeing horsemen led Hoppy in California to their amazing discovery at the edge of the Rio Andeando... The body of a man colored a brilliant red from head to foot. Meanwhile, at the ranch house of Kid Cavanaugh...
2: You know something, Kid. I don't think you're being very smart.
1: Why not?
2: You'll never get anywhere with this outfit. You know that. I'm driving 500 ahead north in a couple of days, Cantrell. That's nothing to sneeze at. Besides, there's something else. What's that? You haven't told me why you want to buy me out. What do you mean? I just finished telling you. Even if you are short of water, you've got some good grazing here. With my water, I can build this up to a thousand head. Besides, I need the right of way. Now, look, I've only been here a couple of years, but I think I know what's going on around here. a dozen ranches and one miserable town all squeezing out every drop of water there is. This country won't support one more beef critter than is here already. So don't you tell me you could put 500 head more on this place if you bought it. I offered you a fair price, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, too fair. If you'd made it a couple thousand or less, I might have thought you were on the square. Oh. Okay, Kip. For now. For now? Yeah. Never can tell. Something might happen to change your mind. What...
3: Kip!
2: What is it, Martha?
3: I don't know. Something's wrong. Huh? The cattle out by the corral, they act like they're sick or something.
1: Sick?
4: You see what I mean, Kip?
2: No. No, I don't. Well, just think it over, will you? Uh, by the way, your friend Cassidy's in town. I just saw him heading for the sheriff's office. Now take it easy, gents. If you think I'm going to
5: swallow a crazy iron about a blood-red corpse... But you... that's
2: just what it was, Sheriff. We done buried him there right by the river, marked the grave with a heap of rocks. Red? His clothes, his hands, his face, everything. We'd have packed him down here, but we were loaded up already, and with a hundred miles of desert to cross... Yeah,
5: but red. A dead man that's red, ain't he? What's that,
2: Sheriff? Oh, oh, this here's Doc Galloway. I sent for him when you told me about this. Hello, Hoppy. Howdy, Doc. Doc, what'd you say if I told you these gents ran across a red corpse? Red? Yeah. Where? Rio Andiendo, right where she disappears. Near the water? That's right. It... it can't be. The red death. The what? The red death. It swept through this section years ago. Sort of a legend now, but it does have a basis of truth. What are you talking about? The springs, the water holes all through here suddenly turned red, became poisonous. Killed humans, horses, everything. Like the plague. Probably a bacteria, some kind of germ that suddenly increased beyond all reason and... All this wasn't anything like that, Doc. This man died from something else entirely. Forty-four Irish, Sudden concentration of lead in the sacri-iliac. He was shot. We got a glimpse of the killer as he rode off. Well, I'll send the deputy up after the corpus delecti and maybe we'll know more about this red business. Reckon we'll be able to find the grave if you marked it, like you say. Poppy. Kid, how are you, boy? Well, I'm okay, I hope. California? Kid! Oh, you don't know how glad I am you're here. Well, I'll be... Uh, no, no, wait a minute, Doc. I want to see you, too. want you to come out to my ranch, if you can. Well, what's wrong? I don't know. A bunch of my cattle suddenly took sick like they were poisoned or something. Poisoned? Yeah. And a funny thing. That spring of mine, the water's running red.
0: What do you make of it, Doc?
2: I don't know, Kit. And... Come on, Doc. Tell me.
3: Please, Doc.
5: Well, I'm afraid they are poison. Oh,
6: I knew it. I knew it.
7: Martha,
5: please.
6: I, I can't help it, Kit. It almost seems like something's working against me.
1: Look, dear, it's not going to help oh, I any. I know
6: it. I, I guess I'm just a coward or a quitter or something. It's just that it's happened this way every time. We'd build a lot of hopes. we start out telling ourselves that this time we'll lick Martha. it. What's the world got against us, kid?
1: Martha, you don't know how you're making me feel. Not your fault, Doc. I sold you this
7: ring. You couldn't know about it. I
1: know that, but... but... Look, let me do this, will you? What? I'm all alone. I have no family. I've got plenty to get by on. What if... What if we just forget there ever was a deal? You mean you'd...
7: God.
2: Let me test the water first. We'll make sure before we go any further. If it's what I think it is, I'm willing to call it off. You know the old saying, satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. Well, I don't know what to say, Doc. Well, then don't say it. I'll say this much. I don't do business that way. If I took on a load of poisoned water with this ranch... I'm stuck with it. Kit. I'm sorry, Martha. Here comes Cantrell. Yeah. Brace yourselves, everyone.
1: What's the verdict, Doc? Red plate?
2: If it is, you'll know soon enough, Cantrell. Yeah? When it hit this country last time, it took every ranch in the district. Funny thing, Doc. I'm not worried at all. And Kit. Yeah? The offer's still good if you want to sell out. Only the price has changed. Goes down a
1: thousand dollars a day until you make up your mind. Maybe you'd better get out of here, Cantrell. Sure, Doc. But just remember that kid, thousand dollars a day. Uh,
2: Uh, Hoppy. Yeah would it hurt too much for you to wise me up as to the goings-on? Uh, where are we headed? Ah, there it is. Sure is. What? The Navajo Saloon. Finest <laughs> drink emporium in Alta You going in uh, on another desperately binge? <clears throat> <laughs> I want to talk to the proprietor. He's an old friend of mine. <laughs> for a teetotaler, you know more bartenders than any man living. Sometimes I got my doubt. <clears> hmm. <throat> His name's Eustace, Eustace Culpepper. And if he ran for president, I'd vote for him. Well, here we are. After you, California. Thank you, Mr. Cassidy. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, Eustace.
5: Bill? Name shop-along. He
2: knew me when my name was Bill California. Uh, California Carlson, meet Eustace Culpepper. Howdy. Hey,
1: I'll be with you in a shake, Bill.
2: Sure, go ahead. Uh,
1: now, Fred, what, what... Sit down, California. Oh,
2: uh, excuse me, stranger. Not at all. i What's this got to do with them pies and steers? Shh. Not here. Um, uh, you new in town, stranger? Just coming through. My name's Cassidy. This is California Carlson. I'm Mike Reardon. Howdy. Uh, just passing through, you say? That's right. You, uh, you in the cattle business, Reardon? Nope. I see. Um, uh, quiet in here, ain't it?
1: I like it quiet. Uh, oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> now, Bill... Or along it is now,
1: huh?
2: <laughs> it was Bill when I knew him up north. Now, nah, Eustace. Oh, them were the days, eh, along, Let me tell you, he was a tiger at a church social. <laughs> <laughs> Eustace ran the drugstore up north when I was a kid. Well, is that so? <laughs> Look, Eustace, hey, maybe you and me could... Oh, just... no, you don't, California. Uh, tell me, Eustace. What did you do with your equipment when you gave up the drugstore and took the bartending? Oh, well, still got it, Stashed away in the barn out back. You remember anything about the drug business? Sure do. No, I went into patent medicine for a while. Put out the slickest concoction you ever laid a tonsil on. Mm. Tasted wonderful. Wouldn't cure nothing, but I sold gallons of it. <laughs> uh, you're just the fellow I'm looking for. Uh, California, you sit here with Mr. Reardon while Eustace and I take a trip out to the barn.
7: Ah.
1: Well, well, just let her set till she clears up
2: You sure you're right? Why not? Well, you haven't run a test like this for 30 years the equipment's rusty, but I ain't. I hope not. This is pretty important. Where'd you get this? Down to Kit Kavanaugh's spring. His stock turned up sick this morning. What makes you think it was... Uh... I don't think anything yet. That's why I got you to drag out this equipment. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, ain't it? That pink color. Yeah. How's it look now? Well, we might be able to... Yeah. Hold the lantern up so that I can look through it.
8: There you are.
2: Hmm. What about it? You're right about that water, Bill. What's in it? Arsenic. Hmm. That answer your question? Uh, It answers the little one. What's the big one? What's a dead man, colored red from top to toe, sitting by a stream 120 miles from here, got to do with a batch of sick cows on Kit Cavanaugh's ranch?
1: Well, now that's, uh,
2: that's quite a question.
8: Indeed it is, Eustace. Indeed, it is.
1: It's late in the evening, and Hoppy in California returned from Alta Mesa to Kit Cavanaugh's ranch at the edge of the desert. Hoppy Yeah, Kit.
2: Do me a favor, will you? Stop pacing the floor. in the motion. I'm getting nervous. Oh, I'm sorry. This thing's beginning to get me. It's simple enough. I bought myself a spring full of poison water. It's not that simple. Why not? This isn't the first arsenic well around here. I bet it's the first one turned arsenic overnight. No, oh, there's more to it than that. Cantrell's still willing to buy. You sell to him, and I'll break your neck. You're a little late. Huh? You mean you? No, no, I didn't sign anything, not yet. But every day I wait cost me a thousand dollars. What did you tell him? Said I'd be willing to talk business in the morning. Now wait a minute. You listen to me, Kit. I'm too listening to anyone. Whose ranch is it? Yours? Who's going broke if the cattle die? You, Kit? Oh, I. Sorry, Hoppy. I guess I'm falling to pieces. What with Martha and all to think about. Sure, I know. But there's something more to it. Something none of us know about. Look, the ranch goes sour. Spring runs poison. Yet look at Cantrell, willing to buy. And at a pretty good price, too. And Doc ready to give you back your money and take title for the spread. Does that make sense? No. I can't help feeling all of us has got something to do with that dead man we found up north. Oh, but am a doggone, Hoppy. How can that happen? I any... don't know. Call it a hunch if you want. Everybody's getting jumpy around here. Now, take that deadhead fellow we sat with back at Eustace Culpepper saloon. What was that, California? Uh, that feller we sat with. What did you call him? Deadhead. Why deadhead? Oh, uh, well, that's about the only thing he'd tell me. don't know his business or nothing, but... When I asked him how he got to Altamater, he said something about he dead-headed in on the stage. You're sure he said that? Yeah, but But what... uh, That's it. I knew there was a connection between that man at Disappearing River and this thing here. What do you think? I'm going down to the hotel. He's probably staying there. I want to talk to that bird right now. (laughs) Mr. Reardon just checked out, and I don't know where he went. Could he leave town? I run the hotel here, not the transportation business. Now, I don't mind telling you I'm busy. Ah, uh, yeah, sure. Henry? Yeah, Eustace. Never get up to heaven that way, Henry. Uh, what is it, Eustace? Oh, Henry's straying a mite from the gospel. He knows he hustled Mr. Reardon out the back door of this flea bag not a half hour ago. Eustace, show him. it, Henry. I've seen it with my own eyes. He rode off toward Lazy Sea Ranch with Steve Cantrell. Thanks, Eustace.
7: Eustace, Captain, yes. wanna... right?
2: <laughs> now, you never busted your work to Cantrell, Henry. I mean, for that $5 you slipped it to Wait. shut up. Wait. After all, it me that told Cassidy.
7: Uh.
1: I don't like this, Cantrell. I'm not used to being Shanghai. No bad feelings,
2: Redden. Just want a little private talk, that's all. I know why you're here, and I think I can help you. That is, if you play along with me. Go on, Cantrell. I can deliver what you want tomorrow morning. At a price, of course. There's only one thing. What's that? When are you planning to make this thing public? Tomorrow. I'm going to call a meeting of the cattlemen. Suppose you were to hold off till I get this little thing of mine straightened out. Can't do that. I'm afraid you'll have to.
1: What kind of a remark is that, Cantrell?
2: Call always a threat if you want to. You're riding up to my ranch tonight and you're going to stay there until the. Wait a minute. Go on, Cantrell. I'm interested too. Cassidy. Go ahead. Reach for your gun.
7: Okay. Oh.
2: You better trot home to the lazy sea and soak your hand. We'll be seeing you at the cattleman's meeting tomorrow, Cantrell.
5: Maybe sooner than that, Cassidy.
2: Man talks tough. Ah, you will get over it. Now, what about you? All right, what about me? Don't you think you'd better tell me why you're here? Sure. At the meeting tomorrow night. <laughs> ah, you already gave yourself away, Reardon. When you told my partner you dead-headed into Altamesa on the stagecoach. Only a railroad man would say that.
1: All right, so I'm a railroad man.
2: And the only reason I can see for a railroad man to be in Alta Mesa right now is to lay out the location for a railroad across the arena at De La Muerte. Can maybe link up with the line on the west end. You're a pretty good guesser. I try to be. So when you start thinking railroads, you automatically start looking around for something Alameda hasn't got. In quantity, at least. Water. That's right. Okay, Cassidy, you win. It is a railroad and it is water. We sent a man here weeks ago to look the place over. Last we heard from him, he said he'd worked out a brilliant idea to find it for us. Then what? Nothing. We dropped out of sight. I think I know where you'll find him. Yeah, in the back room of the sheriff's office, stretched out on a table, covered from head to foot with red dye and pretty dead. You mean, yeah? Cal and I, California and I found him two nights ago, a hundred and twenty miles north of here, at the edge of the Rio Indio. You know, Ridden, that's something else we ought to take up at the cattlemen's meeting. <laughs>
1: And so... All right, Doc. Good to see
7: you. All right. May I
2: have your attention, please?
1: You've already been told that the railroad I represent is planning a line across the Arena Del Muerte to link up with the other side. I don't need to go into what that'll mean to
2: this section. Here at the edge of the desert, a town will spring up that'll grow into one of the big cattle shipping centers of the southwest. But all of our thinking up to now has run up against a stone wall. The one thing that keeps this section down, the thing that limits the number of cattle you can raise, the thing that keeps this town down to a crossroads, is water.
7: That's uh, right. Every
2: drop of water available here now is being used. We'll need a hundred times as much if we're to think about running the railroad through here or building the town to go with it. Now, how
5: are you going to do with a water where there ain't none? Now,
9: let
2: me draw a diagram on the blackboard here. Here's a triangle. At the point of it, at the top, is the spot where the Rio Andiendo disappears into the earth, 120 miles north of here.
10: Well, what could that
2: do us? If we could tap that river under the ground. We'd have all the water we need and more besides.
7: Go? Go what do you think of that? Now,
2: along the bottom line of the triangle is the Altamesa country right here with its dozen or so ranches, all existing on the seeps that come to the surface. The engineer we sent here a few weeks ago figured one of those seeps might connect with a river itself under the desert. If we could find which one, it'd be simple to develop it to drill down and tap the main stream. But which one of the seats?
7: There's a out of him. So
2: our engineer figured out a simple plan. He rode north to the point where the river disappears and poured red dye into it for three days. Sure enough, day before yesterday, the spring at one of the ranches here ran red. The Kit Cavanaugh ranch out at the edge of the mesa. Kit! but honey, our
7: awesome. ranch. Right. Oh, kids. Mr.
2: Cavanaugh now holds the development of this section in his hands. And I hope we'll be able to work with him in following it through. Just a minute, please. Just a minute. There's one thing more. Mr. Reardon left it to me to mention that the railroad engineer isn't with us tonight to see how his plan succeeded. Because someone, someone in this room, who had an eye on the money that water'd bring here... Murdered the engineer and left his body up there by the Rio Andiendo. I think we can find out who that is. His horse dropped the shoe on the trail up there right after the killing. He rode him over 120 miles of desert trail on a bare hoof, The left hind one. Everyone will keep his feet while my partner checks the horses at the tie rack outside. If the horse isn't there... We'll all stay right here while the ranchers are searched till we find him.
10: <coughs>
5: Let me out of here.
7: Hey, has hey, hey, gun. You...
5: Doc.
2: Doc Galloway. Gosh, Hoppy, I don't know how to thank you for all you <laughs> Oh, forget it, kid. Let's think about those cattle we're going to start north tomorrow. Morning. Oh, let's not. <laughs> Doggone it, Hoppy. You sure pulled the rabbit out of the hat with that horseshoe. I was wondering what you picked up back there at the reel. <laughs> yeah? You know, seeing old Eustace Culpepper reminded me of something I learned when I was a kid and my mother made me go to Sunday school. Something in the Bible that says the guilty flee when no man pursueth." Oh, How come? Well, you saw that horseshoe, didn't you, California. No, why? <laughs> that thing I picked up on the trail had been there since 49. And besides, it never belonged to a horse anyway. It belonged to a mule.
7: ha, ha, ha,
1: Hoppy in California are hitting the trail homeward again. And after this little adventure, the Bar 20 is going to be a welcome sight. Hope you enjoyed this friendly visit and that you'll remember to tune in next time these two fighting cowboys get involved in another thrilling escapade. Up along Cassidy, starring William Boyd, is transcribed and produced in the West by Walter White Jr. The Red Death was written by Harold Swanton. All stories are based upon the characters created by Clarence E. Mulford. This is a Commodore production.
0: William Boyd as Hopalong Cassidy, and the Scottish actor Andy Clyde as California Carlson in The Red Death, from April 16, 1950, in which we learned a little bit about the early days of Bill Cassidy, the wicked flea when no man pursueth, a proverb that he learned in Sunday school in that episode, and a little bit of bluffing, we find out, could flush out the guilty. Hopalong's friend was played by Larry Dobkin, who frequently appeared on Gunsmoke on radio, but also had a career that spanned from World War II-era radio productions to a voiceover in the 1999 video game Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six Rogue Spear. Dobkin was also the narrator for the Hall of Presidents at the Magic Kingdom. And speaking of longevity... George Burns is next with Gracie Allen on Skywave Audio Theatre. That vaudeville style of repartee carried them through the hard times and onto the radio in 1932 on a routine basis and a series that lasted 17 years, by which time George Burns and Gracie Allen had started a successful eight-year run on TV, and they used the TV medium cleverly, too. It wasn't just audio with pictures, they knew how to use TV in creative ways. George Burns had a monitor with which he could eavesdrop on uh, the various goings-on around his house. Well, George Burns had staying power. His first film appearance was as himself in the big broadcast in 1932, and his last was in Radioland Murders 62 Years Later. George Burns also had 10 best-selling books to his credit, the last of which came out in 1996, and that was the year that George Burns celebrated his 100th birthday. At hand, an excursion into literature as Gracie tries to elevate George's reading above the level of cowboy love tales. Our outing with Burns and Allen comes from April eleventh,
11: 1946. Well, how- Oh, come right in, Oh, George, we've got company.
12: And now meet the people who live in the Burns House, George and Gracie. As we look in at the Burns house today, We find Gracie at the front door being
13: greeted by an old friend. Good morning, Mrs. Burns. Oh,
11: hello, Mr. Postman. How are you feeling this morning?
13: As always, Mrs. Burns, incredibly superb. (laughs) Not much mail today. Just this magazine your husband gets every week.
11: Oh, cowboy love tales. Those silly stories about Oklahoma Oklahoma Techs. How can he read such trash?
13: Well, I must confess, I, too, read Cowboy Love Tales, Mrs. Burns. It has a tremendous appeal for every virile, red-blooded (laughs) he-man. Though what your husband sees in it, I can't say.
11: Oh, you actually enjoy Cowboy Love Tales, Mr. Postman? Oh,
13: yes. It gives me great joy and a bad shock now and then. What joy to read of Oklahoma, Texas, sweetheart, Lucy, the beautiful school marm. Her eyes of cornflower blue, her luscious red lips, her hair like wild honey.
11: Oh, well, where does the shock come in?
13: When I look up and see that thing I married.
11: <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'm surprised your wife lets you read just like that.
13: She doesn't like it. She caught me reading it the other day and tried to stop me. I stuck my tongue out at her. Oh,
11: you shouldn't have stuck your tongue out.
13: It always comes out when she's choking me.
11: (laughs) Sometimes I feel like choking George for reading cowboy love tales. It's changed his whole life. He talks like a cowboy. He acts like a cowboy.
13: I've noticed he even walks like a cowboy. (laughs) With his legs bowed.
11: Oh, uh, well, that he did before he read the magazine.
13: Oh, I see. Oh,
11: well, I think I hear him stirring around in there, Mr. Postman. I'd better say goodbye.
13: Goodbye, Missy Burns. Remember, keep smiling. Oh,
11: good morning, George. Morning,
5: my little heifer.
11: Oh, no.
5: (laughs) When I wake up, uh, I seen you wasn't in the bunkhouse. So I came ambling to the corral looking for you.
11: Oh, George, please stop that silly cowboy talk. It's become very embarrassing to me. Embarrassing? Oh, yes. I asked you to call a beauty shop the other day and make an appointment for me. And what did you say to Pierre? Uh, get your heating on ready, Frenchie. My little doggies are coming in to get <laughs> clipped and Curry.
7: Well.
11: And I was mortified when you spoke to the head waiter at Ciro's last night. How come? George you do not refer to Ciro's as the chuck wagon where your biffles get hit.
5: I like that western talk. Well, I don't. I don't
11: like it. It, It's bad enough to call Ciro's the chuck wagon, but please stop referring to me as old paint.
5: That's a term of a dearman, gal.
11: Oh, George. I'm trying to get into Mrs. Randolph's exclusive literary society. I haven't a chance that she finds out my husband reads cowboy love tales.
5: I enjoy cowboy love tales. But
11: there are so many fine things to read. Shakespeare, Dickens, Beethoven.
5: (laughs) I don't care much for Beethoven. Give me a good mystery writer like Irving Berlin.
11: (laughs) Well, believe me, I didn't think I'd like the classics either at first but now I've studied Shakespeare until I practically know it by heart. Really? Oh, sure, and you can, too. There's a book right here in our library called The Complete Works of the... uh, 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 What's his first name again? William. Oh, yes, William William Shakespeare. William (laughs) Shakespeare, yes, it's hard to
5: remember. (laughs) Shakespeare and those guys are for sissies. Us virile red-blooded he-men don't want stuff like that.
11: Well, do you consider Bill Goodwin a virile red-blooded he-man? Oh, sure. Well, he just drove up in his car, and in a minute... You'll see how much fine literature has done for him. Bill? Mm -hmm. I've gotten Bill so interested in the classics, he's given up women.
5: Oh, stop.
11: (laughs) I mean it, George. He he doesn't whistle at girls anymore. He he just whistles at books.
5: He whistles at books?
11: You should have heard him when he read Forever Amber. (laughs) Well, I
5: don't believe that Bill has given up girls for literature.
11: Well, here he comes, back Okay, I will. Hi,
5: folks. Hello,
12: Bill.
11: Bill, I'd like that. Just Not
5: now, you. George. I'm in a hurry. Gracie,
12: where's your big volume of Shakespeare?
11: Oh, right here, Bill.
12: Thanks, Gracie. I'll take it in the den. See you later. Well,
5: I'm a son
11: of a girl. Oh, I told you so. Fine literature has helped Bill. And it could help you. Oh. Well, now, suppose a little bobolink were to perch on our windowsill and sing. Now, if you are familiar with the classics, you could quote to him from William Cullen Bryan's famous poem, Robert of Lincoln. How does it go? Bobbling, bobbling, spink, spank, spink. <laughs> uh,
5: that's a classic? Sure. Spink, spank, spink. From yes. <laughs> that Bryan made a living?
7: <laughs> <laughs> Certainly.
5: Well, he could have cleaned up with a thing like... Robin, Robin, Sisbum, Bobbin. <laughs> oh, and of course, Quail, Quail, shoot me in the tail. <laughs> On that, the man could retire. Oh, not
11: Stop. Stop. Stop Spring, spring, spring.
12: Oh, Gracie, uh, can I take your copy of Plato in the den?
11: Oh, sure, here it is, Bill. Thank you. Want Shakespeare and Plato? Too. Isn't that wonderful? Now if you take an interest in literature, think of the inspiring talks about books that we could have together.
5: I'd rather not.
11: Oh, but they'd be so fascinating. Come on, let's try one now. Gracie. George, have you read Vanity Fair by William Makepeace Thackeray?
5: No. Have you?
11: No. Can <laughs> hey, you see how we could while away the hours?
5: Yeah, must have more of these talks
11: Oh, look, here comes Meredith Wilson Now, he's another reason why I want you to give up cowboy love tales What do you mean? Well, he looks upon you as his hero If he discovers that you read it, he'll want to read it And, George, we don't want Meredith to start that cowboy talk Think how silly you'd sounds saying something like...
5: Well, slap a saddle on me and call me an ornery maverick if it ain't the Burns of Stallion and Philly.
11: Oh.
7: (laughs) It's too late.
10: How are you this morning, my little Philly? And how's your wife?
5: Gracie's the Philly, Meredith, not me. Really? Really. Yeah, and
11: I'll thank both of you to stop referring to me as a horse. Uh, it's beginning to affect me. <laughs> yesterday, I shied away from a car.
5: <laughs> Meredith? Yes, partner? Gracie thinks this cowboy stuff is bad for you. But I find it most enjoyable,
11: particularly as portrayed on the screen by such excellent rooters and tutors as Gene Autry. Cowboy movies, too? Yeah. I saw a ringtail Dandy just yesterday. It was called The Outlaw. Oh, no. <laughs> However, the audience puzzled
12: me. They stopped and whistled when there were no cowboys visible. Only a young woman named Jane Russell.
5: That's all, huh? Sure. What were they whistling about? She wasn't shooting anybody. Meredith, Jane Russell was the star of the picture. Really? Well, I must confess she didn't impress me. No? No. What's she got that Gene Autry hasn't got? <laughs> the makings of a great cowboy. Well, thanks, partner. Well, I reckon I'll be a mosey on along. Well, goodbye, Meredith. Yippee, oh. And a happy journal to you,
11: too. <laughs> oh, George, you should be ashamed of yourself. Meredith might have become a cultured, refined lover of the classics like Bill Goodwin. But no, you turned him into Quick,
12: Gracie, hand me that big volume of Charles Dickens.
11: Oh, of course, Bill. Well,
12: wait a minute. How can you read all those books at the same time? Who's reading them? The dame next door is taking a sunbath. I'm standing on him so I can see her. <laughs> I thought so. Well, sure. Every time she moves, I have to get another book.
11: <laughs> oh, Phil. explains it yet. I'm so disappointed in you. You said you were giving up girls for good books.
12: Well, I tried, Gracie. Honest, I did. After you talked to me, I broke all my dates and went right to the library to see if the librarian had anything worthwhile. And
11: did she have anything?
12: Yeah, that's what got my mind off books. <laughs> but not for long, Gracie. One look at Milton and I forgot it.
11: Oh, good. John Milton?
12: No, Milton Davis, her husband.
11: Oh, Bill, didn't you try reading at all?
12: Well, sure, Gracie, but everything I read reminded me of a girl. First, I tried Longfellow's Hiawatha by the shores of Gitchy Gumi. Uh, Gitchy Gumi was as far as I got. Oh, that uh,
11: reminded you of a girl?
12: Yeah, a redhead in Pasadena. She's always chucking me under the chin and saying, Gitchy Gitchy. <laughs> <laughs>
11: how,
12: how about Gumi? She changes that to Gimme.
7: Gimme, gimme. <laughs>
11: Uh, Mrs. Randolph wanted you to come to her literary club meeting. You're supposed to give a report on Jane Eyre.
12: How can I give a report on her? I was never out with the day.
11: (laughs) Oh, men are so disgusting. Where would the world of literature be without women? Women like Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Francis Bacon. (laughs) Bacon was a man. Oh, I might have known it. Anything that close to ham. Well, I can name plenty of other women writers. There's, uh, uh, the, 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 the Gypsy Rose Lee. Oh, yes.
5: Yeah, she, she wrote a classic.
11: Yeah, well, at least she wrote. Name one man stripteaser who's written a book. Sidney <laughs> <laughs> Newman.
7: Very oh. okay. good.
11: George, give up cowboy love tales. Try the classics. Now, here, I'll just open this book of famous poems and read you a bit. Uh, no. Now, listen to this. Hail to thee, blithe spirit, bird thou never wert.
5: What does that mean?
11: Oh, George, how can you be so ignorant? Didn't you see that picture, blithe spirit? Yes. All right. Hail to thee, blithe spirit, bird thou never wert. In other words, the picture wasn't a turkey. <laughs> no. Yes, and here's another classic. Well, no, One stadium. classic a day,
7: I think, is what... Well. <laughs>
12: Georgia, Meredith Wilson and his orchestra. I heard you rehearse that song you're playing. I couldn't help thinking how music naturally conjures up definite pictures.
10: Well, that's certainly true, Bill. Except that I think this song about Georgia must call up a lot of different picture impressions. For instance, there are not only the rolling fields of cotton and tobacco, and the famous Georgia peach orchards, but there's the seacoast with its own salty, sunbleached charm.
12: Yes, then there are the Pine Ridge Mountains, too. You know, as all the old shaded roads wind from one contrasting section of the state to another, they carry memories of a past rich in history. No wonder Georgia is so well-loved a part of our American scene.
11: I'm so excited Mrs. Randolph is coming over to see if I qualify for her literary club.
5: She is, huh? Mm-hmm.
11: Help me scatter these books around. I want the house to look very cultural when she gets here.
5: Okay. Where do these go?
11: Oh, now, uh, put that book on philosophy there on the table. Yeah. And the ethics book on the top of the piano. Okay. And this volume on geopolitics here.
5: Well, Mrs. Rand- Randolph uh, may not go for stuff like this. Some of it's pretty heavy.
11: Oh, that's all right. So is some of Mrs. Randolph. I see. This whole set of Dickens goes on the table, too. Oh, no, no. You better take the tale of two cities out. That might be out of place in a California home. Why? Well, I haven't read it, and one of the cities might be in Florida.
5: Yeah, we can't be too careful about that.
11: Oh, and did you notice the three statues of the famous authors I bought? Yeah. Who are they? Well, that one's Pete, and that one's Shelley, and that one's Venus de Milo.
7: (laughs)
5: did she write?
11: Nothing, nothing. But I, I couldn't find a statue of Shakespeare, so I'll just paint a beard on her, and Mrs. Randolph won't know the difference. <laughs>
5: Believe me, she'll know the difference.
11: Oh, um, forage too low. Yeah, huh? low
5: forage, yes. <laughs> well, And Willie I... plotted his hair on yes. the side.
11: Yes. Oh, oh, look, there's Mrs. Randolph driving up. Quick, George, out the back way. I don't want you confusing her with that cowboy talk. Confusing her? Yes, if I introduced her, you'd probably say... Full a our old critter. The old critter wouldn't know why to put what.
3: <laughs> okay, I'll go down to the drugstore.
11: Come in. Oh,
3: good afternoon, Mrs. Burns. I'm afraid I'm a wee bit late for our appointment. Oh, really, Mrs. Randolph? I hadn't noticed. Uh, time passes so
11: quickly when one has one's book.
3: Uh, how true. I'll wager you've had your nose in a book all day. Oh,
11: yes. I only took it out once or twice to powder it. Uh, yes
3: my dear, what joy What rapture is to be found in literature Shakespeare's classic romances Romeo and Juliet Othello and Desdemona Yes, and that other sweet couple Mac and Beth (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Burns One does not separate Mac and Beth.
11: Oh, I wouldn't think of it. They're crazy about each other.
3: (laughs) You say such amusing things.
11: (laughs) I do? Oh,
3: I see you have some French literature. Isn't this book Les Miserables?
11: No, I thought it was pretty good. (laughs) Uh, Les
3: Miserables is the title. It was written by Hugo? Hugo? Victor.
11: Oh, Hugo Victor. Yes, he's very
3: good. Uh, The name is Victor Hugo. Of course, there are so many splendid writers. But of them all, my favorite is the inspired Scotch poet who wrote to a field mouse. He wrote to a field mouse? Yes.
11: I hope he wasn't silly enough to expect an answer. (laughs) My
3: dear... Surely, even in jest, you wouldn't claim so little knowledge of the works of Robert Burns. Who? The incomparable Robert Burns. Oh,
11: oh, him!
3: Well, really, my dear, I can hardly consider you for membership in my literary club if you're so unfamiliar with the immortal Robert Burns.
11: Well, uh, you see, Mrs. Randolph, I pretended not to know about Robert Burns because one doesn't boast about one's own family. You...
3: You knew? Mm-hmm.
11: my husband is George Burns, the great grandson of Robert Burns? Oh, no. Yes.
3: Robert Burns. Yes. The Scotch poet. I. Well, I had no idea your husband was Scotch.
11: Oh, really? Well, you should go out with him sometime.
3: <laughs> oh, my God. why this is most. Drilling,
11: Mrs. Burns. Oh, well, now can I join your club, Mrs. Randolph?
3: I shall be delighted to welcome you to my phone. (gasps) Come
12: in. Hello, Gracie. I just dropped... Oh, Mrs. Randolph. How are you?
3: Oh, how do you do, Mr. Goodwin?
12: Well, what are you girls so happy about? You're fairly beaming, Mrs. Randolph.
3: Oh, I've had a most pleasant surprise, Mr. Goodwin. Oh, really? Yes. I just discovered Mr. Burns' scotch. (laughs) Well, you better hurry
12: and drink it up before he gets
7: home.
3: (laughs) I... I think you misunderstood me. Well,
11: let's uh, let's talk about Bill joining your literary society,
3: Mrs. Randolph. Oh well, I'm sure you would enjoy it, Mr. Goodwin. I have quite a large fold.
12: So I see. Why don't you exercise?
3: <laughs> I never.
12: Well, you should. I'll see you later,
3: girl. Well, really, Mrs. Burns, if that is the caliber of your pen, I don't see how I can make you a member oh, of. I, I...
11: Mrs. Randolph, you seem to have forgotten that my husband is a direct descendant of your favorite Scotch poet, Robert
3: Burns. Oh, oh, so I did. Oh, is a very foolish girl. Oh, do forgive me, Mrs. Burns. Oh, please tell me all about your husband. When did you meet him?
11: Oh, in Scotland. Oh, I shall never forget it. It, um, it was spring on the Robert Burns estate. The Panatellos were in bloom. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, I saw him walking down the path toward me, dressed in kilt and smoking a bagpipe. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: confused? Oh, probably.
11: <laughs> I was so excited when he spoke to me. He said, not lassie, isn't it a broad brick moonlit nick to <laughs> Well, I tried my best to reply in his native tongue. Oh, and what
3: did you say? I
11: said, yes, it certainly it. <laughs> <laughs> How
3: perfectly adorable. Then well, what happened? Oh, then we got to
11: talking, one thing led to another, and... Finally, he invited me to his barn for a cup of hot The family insisted that I stay for the weekend.
3: Oh, and of course, you followed the old Scottish custom and went grouse shooting. Oh, of
11: course. I shot 11 gripes.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's such a charming romance. Uh, when did you sail for America?
11: Oh, early the following month. We sailed from the 1st to the 4th on the 5th.
3: <laughs> or
11: maybe it was the sixth and the fourth and the first. I forget exactly.
3: Oh, what a divine story. Oh, well, I
11: hope you'd like it. <laughs>
3: I'm dying to meet your husband. I simply adore to see him in kill. Oh, you'll be thrilled, Mrs. Randolph. You know, he has
11: perfectly gorgeous needs. There's the cutest little dimples in them. Oh, there really? is. <laughs> oh, excuse me, Mrs. Randolph. There's someone on the phone in the den. I'll be right back. Where
3: well, is the bell. This is your lucky day. Wait till the girls hear that you've been in the home of Robert Byrne's great-grandson. And you may even get to see him in his pilt. Oh, hello. You're Mrs. Randolph, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Oh, and you must be George Burns. Yeah. Oh, I'm so disappointed you've got pants on. You are? Oh, yes. Oh, I, I suppose you wear them because you don't want to be ostentatious. Yeah. Yeah.
5: I don't want to be arrested, either.
3: But, but here in the privacy of your own home, couldn't you discard them?
7: Hmm? Well, I,
3: I'd so love to see you in your plaid. Uh,
7: they're
3: in the laundry
5: I'm wearing the ones with the polka dots today.
7: <laughs> polka
3: dots. For a descendant of Robert Burns. Descendant of who? Didn't your great grandfather write, coming through the rye? He couldn't even write when he was sober. That's all of anyway.
11: Oh, 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 hello, George. <laughs> Can you are
3: whom?
5: Okay, okay.
7: Forget
3: it. Never mind, Mrs. Burns. It's quite obvious that your husband's great-grandfather was not Robert Burns the poet. Of course not.
5: My great-grandfather was Max Burns, a fish peddler. <laughs> now, my cowboy love tales I'd like to go in the den and read.
3: Cowboy love tales? Mrs. Burns, does your husband read that childish
11: drivel? Well... Yes. Yes, I have to confess, Mrs. Randolph, that I'm so ashamed of him. Well, you should be. It must be unutterable trash. Oh, it is. I don't see how any grown person could read. Now, just listen to this. Now, Gracie. Oklahoma Tex back slowly toward the edge of the cliff. Hank the half breed aimed his rifle at Tex's heart. His tobacco-stained fangs bared in a vicious snarl. Surely, this time, Tex was doomed. Yes, see, Mister Randolph. Well, don't stop there. What happened? To <laughs> oh, oh, I'd like to
13: know myself. Give me my magazine.
11: Oklahoma. Takes glanced to the right, a den of listening rattlesnakes barred his escape. He glanced to the left, ten thousand savage Indians stood between him and safety. Oh, oh girls, I want my magazine. Oh don't
7: read Shakespeare.
0: Tracy Allen creating a Scottish pedigree for George Burns in her effort to uh, join a literary club. And if Mrs. Randall had read more of Robert Burns' poetry, she might have found it just a little too steamy for her lofty social status. That was Burns and Allen from April eleventh, 1946. The news is next. The news from 2,500 years ago. And you are there. This is Skywave Audio Theatre. The idea for You Are There came from Goodman Ace, and he never got much credit for it, though. Ace was a prolific radio writer, best known for Easy Ace's, a low-key quarter-hour comedy series. And You Are There appeared on both radio and TV with slightly different titles. The premise was simple enough. Use contemporary news reporting technology to report on historical events with a man on the scene. This week... 300 Spartans take a stand against a vast army, maybe half a million Persian invaders, at a mountain pass that became famous. Taking you back to a summer day in the year 480 BC, this is the Battle of Thermopylae, and you are there
2: the Greek encampment at the mountain pass near Thermopylae.
4: Here for two steaming summer days, a small
2: force of Greek soldiers has held firm against the tremendous army of invading Persians led by their king Xerxes. Today, the fate of all Greece may hang in the balance because if this pass is lost, then all Greece lies exposed to the invader. The question, how much longer the pass can be held, grows more urgent all the time this third day may tell the story. It's no secret that Leonidas, king of Sparta, who leads the Greeks here at Thermopylae, has less than 7,000 soldiers in his command, including his 300 picked Spartan warriors. While it's generally known that there are more than half a million Persian invaders under Xerxes. The fighting yesterday and the day before,
10: however...
14: August 480 BC. The
2: heroic stand of 300 Spartans against Persians
8: at Thermopylae, you are there. CBS takes you back 2430 years to the Battle of Thermopylae in the crucial struggle between the Persian Empire and the Greek city-states. All things are as they were then except for one thing. With all the modern facilities of radio present and CBS newsmen reporting from the scene, you are there. You Are There is based on historical fact and quotation. And now,
10: August
2: 480 B.C., behind the Greek lines at Thermopylae and Bill and These Greek soldiers are conceding nothing to the Persian invaders. Our CBS microphone has been set up on a knoll inside the Greek camp. And I have a clear view straight down the pass to the spot where yesterday
4: and the day before the fighting was fiercest.
2: Actually, the Greek War Council couldn't have selected a better position to defend. As I look toward the Persian camp, on my right is the sea, and on my left is the steep wall of Mount Eta. The Persians have no choice. They cannot go into the sea, and they cannot go over the mountain. They must come straight
4: through this narrow pass, and believe me, it's really narrow. Two dozen men standing shoulder to shoulder can block it completely. And for the last two days, that's exactly, exactly
2: what the Greeks have been doing. Although how much longer they'll be able to hold out without the reinforcements they've been promised, well, that's in the lap of the gods. Away off to my right, far down the Malian Gulf, I can just make out some sails. Purple
4: and red, and there's a white sail. All Greek warships, trirenes those ships out there must hold back the vast persian fleet so that here at thermopylae
2: leonidas and his small force will not be outflanked there was a bad nor'easter yesterday which boiled down from the hellespont but today the water is calm
4: again and here in this greek camp it's pretty calm too for the moment everybody's waiting and every battle is about 90 percent waiting i guess hurry up and then wait And now here
2: comes half a dozen heavily armed Spartan Hufflites on their way back from the pass. Maybe I can grab a soldier. Soldier. Me? Yes, Yeah. Would you mind stepping over to the CBS microphone for just a moment? Uh, It won't take long, will it? No, no, not at all. But first, uh, would you tell us your name, please? I am Alexander, son of Tundley. Could you tell us what's uh, going on down beyond the narrow part of the pass?
4: Nothing's going on. That's what. No sign of any
2: Persian activity. You know, we've been hearing them sound their battle horns up uh, here. After what we did to them yesterday, I'd say the barbarians were sitting in camp, licking their wounds, scared. <laughs> and you you and your comrades, uh, you're not scared by the size of the Persian army? Now, I'll tell you something. A lot of their army is cavalry. What good does cavalry do them? Here inside this pass, you mean. That's right. And even if they could all fight at once, we wouldn't get scared, because what are they? Mercenaries, conscripts, far from home. Whereas now you take us. We're fighting for our homeland, see? And the rule by the freemen that we've got here in our city-states, and that's important to us. Sure, but uh, half a million against just a few thousand of your Greeks and only a few hundred of you Spartans. Look here now. We'll fight them here and hold them here. But if the gods ordain that they break through, you know what? Wherever there's a Greek alive, he'll fight the Persian and keep on fighting. Till sooner or later, Xerxes and his whole army are running out of here a whole sight faster than they marched in. Uh, Look, I uh, gotta go now. I'll see you around. Thank you, thank you very much, Alexander. Certainly it's true that the Persians suffered heavy losses in the fighting (laughs) yesterday. And incidentally, all through this campaign, Xerxes has ignored the usual military security He's apparently anxious to make known the impressive strength of his invading army, and perhaps for this reason, CBS got permission from the Persian Council of War to bring you direct radio reports from Xerxes' headquarters. Ned Kalmer is waiting now at his pickup point in Xerxes' camp. So come in, Ned Kalmer. I'm speaking from a point just a short distance from the royal enclosure. Officers have been busily throwing around Xerxes' imperial tent since before daybreak, and I understand an announcement is expected fairly soon from Hydarnes, who is captain of Xerxes' own picked bodyguard, the 10,000 Immortals. Nothing is known of the nature of this announcement as yet. From here on the high ground where I'm standing, I can see, spread out before me and along the foothills to my right, well, not all the Persian forces, but a great number of them a crowded, teeming polygon camp gathered from every nation in Xerxes' mighty empire. To my right are the Medes and the Scythians, who took such a mauling in the fighting day before yesterday. Then the Assyrians. And next to them, the Bactrians. After them, the Caspians, whose favorite weapon is the curved scimitar. The Arabians. The Arabians have to camp farthest up the hill because the Persian horses are afraid of their camels. Below them and to the left are the Ethiopians dressed in lion skins and leopard skins. From here I can see their bodies smeared with chalk and vermilion. Then next along, the Numidians whose helmets are the scalps of horses complete with manes and ears. Next to them, the Libyans, then the Paphlagonians. Farther along, the Thracians and the warriors from India. The official claim is an army of 1,700,000 men, but A closer estimate would be about half a million. Uh, There's still no announcement from Haidani's and no indication what that announcement will be. So, until we get further word, we're going to return you now to Bill Leonard with the Greek Army at Thermopylae. Here at Thermopylae, there's still an atmosphere of tension, of waiting for, for nobody knows what. The Greek command is still somewhat astonished to find the Persians have not tried another frontal attack on the pass. There's a growing suspicion here that Xerxes has some trick up his sleeve. Some Greeks think it may have something to do with that announcement from Hydarnes that Ned Calmer just mentioned. Others think it may involve a fleet engagement. Larry Lasseur is with the Greek fleet, and we'll hear from him later.
9: Meanwhile,
4: we take you to the CBS studios in Athens for a background analysis of this whole campaign by Quincy Howe. Come in, Quincy Howe. Here in Athens, all citizens have turned their eyes north to the mountain pass at Thermopylae and to the sea off Artemisium. For the third time in 12 years, the Persian Empire threatens the democratic but divided city-states of Greece, and this looks like the most serious threat of all. Disunity among the loose alliance of Greek city-states was still very strong as early as the spring of this year, not four moons ago. At that time, most Greek statesmen attributed the present Persian invasion to the Emperor Xerxes' desire for revenge against Athens, revenge for the defeat the Athenians inflicted on the Persians at Marathon ten years back. And this impression gained strength from the now celebrated first prophecy of the priestess at the sacred Oracle of Delphi. CBS assigned Jack Walters to cover this event at that time. And here, by tape recording, is an excerpt from his eyewitness report at the Delphic Oracle.
9: The
2: Athenian delegation has just completed the customary rites to Apollo. and They're now taking their seats inside the sanctuary of the God. <laughs> The acrid fumes rising out of the fissures in the rock are... <coughs> Excuse me. Now the delegation is quieting. The smoke is beginning to clear. We can see the priestess, Aristoniki. She is leaning forward on her sacred tripod. She, she seems to be completely entranced. The Athenian delegation is... Russia! The priestess speaks.
9: Why did you here. In your home and the crest which your city crowns with her sunlit, oh, oh.
4: Leaders of the Peloponnesian states to the south, especially the ruling families of Sparta, feared the Athenians would take the oracle at its word and quit the country altogether. And these Spartans did not like to think where they would be left without the famous Athenian navy. To persuade the Athenians to stand and defend their homeland, Sparta persuaded Athens to implore a second prophecy from the priestess of Apollo. Indeed, it was even whispered in some quarters that the priestess of the oracle was herself urged to suggest a more patriotic course on the Athenians. A second Athenian delegation, therefore went to Delphi, and here once more by tape recording is the significant part of that second prophecy.
9: Forcing Zeus' this to the prayer. Today shall the wooden wall continue for thee and thy children.
4: According to Themistocles, who commands the Athenian warships off Artemisian, that wooden wall was the Athenian fleet. Well, this was an interpretation which the Spartan military leaders had, uh, uh, to put it mildly, hoped for all along. Uh, anyway, a solid core of resistance began to develop. Twenty days ago at the Isthmus, the decision to meet the Persian army at the pass of Thermopylae was taken by the Greek War Council. And tied in, of course, with that decision is the strategy to meet and engage the Persian fleet in the waters north of the pass. Here in Athens, men still feel confident that the 7,000 soldiers under Leonidas will hold the pass at Thermopylae until reinforcements arrive. My understanding is that Sparta is marching a considerable body of heavily armed hoplites, together with a still larger number of light-armed helots, north to the pass just as soon as the Olympic Games and the Carnean Festival have ended. From this vantage point, it therefore appears that these reinforcements uh, uh, will reach Leonidas in time. Moreover, they may well prove decisive in the issue which approaches a showdown this very day, the issue of whether Greek civilization will survive. Now, back to Bill Leonard at Thermopylae. The Greek camp here is in an uproar. Just a few minutes ago, a scout
9: raced
2: into this camp
9: as if pursued by the
2: three juries themselves with the news that a force of Persians under Hydarnes is coming from behind, has outflanked the Greek position here at the pass, and is even now moving up to trap Leonidas and his men. We're, we're trying to get King Leonidas over to our microphone to give us some idea of what counter move he planned. What's happened apparently is this. Last night, the Persians, some 2,000 of them, climbed over the mountain under cover of darkness Using a little known mountain trail, and by a quick feint, evaded the guard posted by Leonidas against just such a move. It's apparently a very narrow trail over these otherwise impassable mountains, and only Leonidas and a handful of others are supposed to have known about it. The talk here is that the Persians must have learned of it through a Greek traitor. I, I see. An emergency council of war, which has been going on among the Greek captains ever since the scout returned. He's just breaking up. Yes, King Leonidas is coming over this way. so in just a moment we'll be able to ask him... I have to me. make it very brief. Yes, sir. Uh, if you would just uh, tell us what your plans are now that the Persians are reported approaching from the rear. Have you issued orders to re- withdraw? Withdraw? Certainly not. Why should we? This sudden unexpected move of the Persians. The barbarians have had a very hard night. It's no easy climb for a man, you know, especially when he's wearing battle armor. 2,000 of them, we're told,
10: and good and tired. There's no surprise in what we propose to do. Xerxes himself can know it, about it. We're splitting our forces. I'm sending a body of Arcadians to intercept Tadonis. Hys- Over 3,000 of them. They ought to cut the barbarians to bits. And you say to hold the pad? Of course, of course. We'll be close to 3,000. Thespians, Thebans, our own helots, we 300 from Sparta. What more do we need? Now I must go. The gods
2: be with you. And with you, King Leonidas.
9: Now, this Greek camp is alive with activity. The showdown with
2: the Persians can be expected at any moment. And for a picture of what's happening in the camp of the invader, come in Ned Kalman. And see if you'll come to the mic, will you? We've moved our equipment to the eastern gate of the Pass of Thermopylae, where the Persian is now mounting full-scale preparations for an all-out assault. Just before going on the air, we were making arrangements to have the Persian king, Xerxes himself, come to our CBS microphone. And I think we've managed uh, to oh an
9: interview.
2: right over here, sire.
9: Yes, sire. you remember that I. King Xerxes,
2: you, if you would just let us have a word. Certainly
14: delighted. We haven't much time. Well, sire, I'll make d- the most of what daylight is left to us. Don't think we'll need any more.
2: Sire, the word has come that your plans for surprising the Greeks from the rear have been successful. Is that correct? So my scout informs me, yes. My uh, Captain Hydanes and 2,000 of my immortals Oops. should have control of the Greeks' escape route in a matter of moments. Well, would you tell us, sire, how did it come about that you learned of this path over the mountain? Well, now, I'm not sure I should
13: That's tell you. That's covered by military security, all that. It's restricted information. Oh,
2: now, come, 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 Rambises. It's not so important as all that. In another few days, we may make that man a district leader in these parts. I'll tell you, young man. I found out about the path when a Greek... A Malian, uh, what was his name again?
13: Ephialtes, O king, Ephialtes, son of Eurydice. That's
2: right, Ebealtes. Now, this
13: Ebealtes, he came to my
8: tent. We promised him a fine reward, too, if by any chance he comes
2: through the fighting alive. And it was he who guided your warriors over the past? Yes, that's right. Now, before the sun has slid very far down the sky, we'll be chewing those Spartan heroes and throwing them to the camels for fodder. <laughs> Sire, <laughs> would you say that <laughs> the Spartans... and the young man, 12 days or so ago it was, my spies reported that there were 300 Greek soldiers sitting just outside their camp, combing and braiding their hair. I'm told that those were Spartans who were preparing to fight to the death. Seems that these Spartans always comb and braid their hair before they expect to die. <laughs> braiding it like a pack of so many girls.
13: Oh, king, live forever. You haven't much more oh, time yes, before yes, yes. you... of
2: course. Many thanks to you, sire, for your consideration. Well, that's the picture at the moment. Here in the Persian camp, all is jubilation as they prepare to mount what every man is convinced will be a final, glorious, victorious assault on the Greeks who've been holding the pass at Thermopylae. Meantime, as you know, the Greek fleet has been engaging Xerxes' warships off Artemisium out in the Malian Gulf. Larry sir is aboard the Athenian trireme commanded by Themistocles... And for a report on the sea fighting, come in now, Larry Lesur.
8: I'm still a bit a bit groggy out here, just beginning to get back my sea legs
2: after the gales and the heavy swells of the past few days. But the <laughs> sea is comparatively calm now. And much has happened out here these last few days. Standing beside me here is the admiral of the Athenian fleet, Themistocles, son of Neocles. He, perhaps more than any other, has played a decisive role in the recent sea battle. You do me too much honor. I imagine, sir, that you would be understandably reluctant to give us an estimate of the strength of the Greek navy here of Artemisium. Well, yes, I would, but I can say we only have a fraction of what the Persians have.
10: However, before we're done, we
2: expect that their advantage won't be quite so big. You've been helped by the storms, haven't you, sir? When the breeze first began to freshen seven days ago, we offered up sacrifices to Boreas, God of the North Wind, and secured our ships at their moorings.
10: The barbarians lost 400 warships in that first storm. They're poor sailors. As soon as we learned what had happened, we offered new sacrifices in honor of Poseidon, the savior. We sailed full speed for the Ottoman coast. Captured
2: 15 more of their ships. By the way, any danger, sir, of their sending ships around this island behind us so as to come at you from the rear? Oh, they've thought of that already. Sent
10: 200 firemen
2: around the island two days ago.
9: (laughs) And every
2: last one of them was smashed against the rocks in yesterday's storms. I don't think they'll risk being caught in those senseless narrows again. Well, tell me, sir, just a speculative question, of course. Yes. But suppose suppose Leonidas should decide to withdraw his troops. Would you stay to fight the Persian fleet anyway? Oh no, no. Our only reason for being here is to protect this flank. And as things are now, I'm confident What's we can hold the narrow an and protect hey, our warriors ashore at Thermopylae. Well, thank you, sir. That was Themistocles, son of Neocles, who's in command of the Athenian you, triremes you. of the back back Greek fleet here off Artemisium. I'm sorry I've had to cut this interview short, but we just had word that Bill Leonard wants the air for an important report from Thermopylae. Come in, Bill Leonard. Events here at Thermopylae have taken another sudden and unexpected turn. Only a short time ago, a runner, spent and exhausted, arrived at Leonidas' camp. No word yet on what message the runner brought. The Spartan king has summoned an
4: extraordinary meeting of his principal warriors. I can report that Leonidas is in a towering rage. Right now I can see him. He's shaking a, a clenched fist toward the east
9: in the
2: direction that runner came from. Impossible to say... What Leonidas is deciding, he's got to do something, and fairly fast. For as I speak, I can see uh, far down to the west the preparations for a Persian attack on... Just a moment, ladies and gentlemen, just a moment. All right, that call all right, means that Leonovus is
9: right summoning here.
4: all his warriors around him.
9: It seems clear he plans We're to speak right. to We're them. the ring. brother, get his orders. Right. Orders. That's right. all we What's get. Nothing but orders. Get in the right. Now Leonovus is climbing upon a mound.
10: Then look quarter and beef. Evil tidings. Word has just come the Arcadians, whom I sent to intercept Hydarnes and his Persians in our rear, have fled. The thirty-five, how can they We will surrender. First, the treachery. Now, Arcadian cowardice. Hydarnes and his Persians are at our back. We must flee for our lives. <laughs> we <must> flee? We stand. We from thee. We will not flee. Surrender. We are lost. I am sure that those who, like their king, were born and trained in Sparta, were never taught the meaning of the word surrender.
9: Sparta,
10: men that feed, yesterday and before that, we held the path. Today... We advance! March the, to the Barbarian beyond the path. Who marches with me to learn the color of the Barbarian's blood? Who marches with me for Hellas and freedom? Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: Well, there it is. There it is, the Spartans will stand and fight. The Theban allies are marching off with them now. us here and on west, down toward where the pass narrows and beyond to meet the Persians head on. Leonidas and his men, they're they're not thinking of escape. They're moving over to the attack. They're advancing, hopeless as it may appear. They're advancing. Their only chance now would seem to be for those reinforcements to arrive. There's been no sign of them up to this moment expected now, you know, for the last three days, and if they don't show up, if they don't show up now, it may be too late. I've just gotten word that Quincy Howe has important news for us from Athens. In the meantime, I'm going to shift this microphone up on the mountainside for a better view of the fighting. Come in, Quincy Howe.
4: Terrible, shattering news. Here in Athens, we have just learned that there are no reinforcements on their way to Thermopylae. I repeat. The vital reinforcements which were understood to be on their way to help Leonidas have not marched. Apparently, a secret decision has been made to hold the reinforcements here, keep them in reserve to fight the Persian when he reaches the Isthmus south of Athens. An atmosphere of gloom and fatalism prevails here in Athens. Families are already packing their belongings, preparing to flee the invading Persian army. This is Quincy Howe returning you to Bill Leonard at Thermopylae.
2: We're now set up on higher ground partway up the steep side of Mount Eta To the west, beyond where the pass narrows the bloody fight has already begun Our runners just come in with the report that Haidarni's force of picked Persian troops is now in sight and the vice is closing I can hear the shouts of the Persians and their battle horns out beyond the pass and there's a great throng of men there it's, it's just a surging mass. I first want me to pick out Greek from invader. Spartan phalanx seems to be holding and even advancing a bit. Beyond them, I can make out Persian officers and they're they're whipping their their conscript soldiers to drive them to the attack. There's there's a message I just got, I uh, just received from uh, Larry Leseur on the flagship of Themistocles off Artemisium. The the Greek captains of the fleet have decided have decided to withdraw. Let me repeat that. The Greek fleet is withdrawing to the south in view of the news of impending disaster here at Thermopylae. The runners coming in every few moments now. With
9: what, what's
2: that you said?
9: Leonidas is dead!
2: The report is that Leonidas, King Leonidas, is dead. That report is not official yet, but I'll try to get confirmation. The Spartan uplights are still in tight formation down there. They're, they're advancing step by step, but they are advancing. The air is thick with Persian arrows. And now, if if that report was true, it was correct. Just make out the body of Leonidas lying out there just where the fighting is fiercest. Spartans, using short swords now, advance ten, twenty more steps. Looks as though, as their advance is just to recover, the body of their king, of Leonidas. Giving ground now. Good order, but they're retreating. Over to the left, beyond the marches, I... See, the, the Thebans are standing alone. They're under Persian guard. The Thebans have surrendered. And the fighting, fighting's now moving back closer, back toward the Greek camp. Spartans retreating now, back over the potion Wall, and up to the mound where, a short time ago, Leonidas last folk See the tears on the faces of the two men who are dying his body.
9: They're as they lay his body down on the mound. The heroism of these Spartans... Of what must have been at least a thousand to one.
2: Persons are advancing now, pouring through the pass in waves, hordes of them, yelling, screaming in fire. Pass of
4: Thermopylae is definitely lost. The fighting's almost over now, huh? Not many Spartans left. Pitiful few
2: of fighting around the body of Leonidas, fighting to protect and this is just terrible to watch. Barehanded, handed they're fighting now. The passage has been lost. Just a matter of moments now before every one of the 300 Spartans will have fallen.
9: For the last
2: man. I'm, I'm watching a match. They're
9: still fighting. But it's just the courage and the desperation.
10: the courage
2: to fight
10: on, to victory over and freedom for free. You are
8: there. You have been listening to the Battle of Thermopylae in the series You Are There. Today's program was written by Peter Lyon, directed by John Dietz, and produced by Sam Abelow. You Are There is a presentation of the CBS Documentary Unit under the supervision of Werner Michel. King Leonidas was played by Barry Kroger, King Xerxes by Arnold Moss, and Themistocles by Carl Frank. Others in the cast were Abby Lewis, Robert Dryden, and Guy Sorrell. You Are There is brought to you every fourth Sunday. The next broadcast will be heard four weeks from today at the same time over most of these same CBS stations. Next month...
7: September 1st,
10: 1670, Old Bailey, London. The trial of William Penn, an embattled jury fight to establish its independence. You are
8: there. Next Sunday at this time, most of these same CBS stations will bring you the reopening of the Main Street Music Hall, fine popular music, sung by Bill Tabbert, the young star of South Pacific, with Alfredo Antonini's orchestra. CBS also invites you to hear the fascinating new quiz program, We Take Your Word, every Sunday night on most of these same stations. We Take Your Word features Abe Burroughs, John K. M. McCaffrey, and Lyman Bryson as regular members of its panel, plus famous guest stars. This is CBS, where you laugh at Jack Benny every Sunday night, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
0: You are there with a battle of Thermopylae in a broadcast from April 16, 1950. You are there. It was on TV with Walter Cronkite as anchor from 1953 to 57. How about that for credibility? Among the other accomplishments, series creator Goodman Ace wrote jokes for Jack Benny. And Jack Benny sent Ace a check for 50 bucks, saying, your jokes got a lot of laughs. If you've got any more, send them. Well, Ace sent the payment back with a note saying, your check got a lot of laughs. If you've got any more, Send them. And that cheekiness (laughs) won him over to Jack Benny, along, of course, with the jokes. He went on to write for Benny for years. Waiting in the wings, it's Johnny Dollar, the insurance investigator with the action-packed expense account on Skywave Audio Theater. There were seven dollars, seven Johnny Dollars, all told, in the course of 14 years on the air. That was not a promising situation. Uh, The original gimmick... Whence Cometh the Name in 1948 was Johnny Dollar's habit of tipping with silver dollars, back when you could actually get one for a buck at the bank. Going to quarter hours for five days a week in 1956 could have been the beginning of a slide into oblivion, but actually, those 75 minutes a week, Bob Bailey and the writers put to good use. They had time to develop Johnny Dollar and the other characters too, not to mention the plot which elevated the series, and it was really one of the best out there in those last, oh, about four years or so. We'll hear the first two episodes this week and the other three next week of The Shepherd Matter. It's yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, from April 16th and 17th, 1956. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny
15: Dollar.
16: Providence, Rhode Island, calling. Mr. Dollar? Yes. One moment, please. Go ahead. Hello? Hello, Mr. Dollar? Yes? This is Dick Porter. I'd like to hire you. Porter? Uh, Dick Porter, I'm an insurance broker here. Bert Masterson at United Adjustment Bureau suggested I contact you. Oh,
17: what's the trouble, Mr. Porter? <laughs>
16: uh, darned if I know exactly. I just have a client who's taking out all the insurance he can get. I may be wrong, but it looks to me
17: like he's getting ready to die. Oh. Can you help me out? I can try, Mr. Porter. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. To Richard Porter, 480 Webster Boulevard, Providence, Rhode Island. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Shepherd matter. Expense account item one, $15. Airfare and Incidentals, Hartford to Providence. I arrived at 2:30 in the afternoon and was in my hotel room by 3.15. At five o'clock, I was having a quiet drink with Porter, who turned out to be a 24-year man in the insurance brokerage business and seemed to know what he was about.
16: I've never had anything like this happen to me, and I didn't quite know what to do about it. I'm glad I can get some expert advice from you.
17: Well, I don't know how expert the advice will be, but I'll do what I can for you, Mr. Porter. Uh, Want another one of these? No, I'm fine for now, thank you. I'll try to explain this matter as far as I know. Two days
16: ago, Dr. Shepard called me up and inquired about rates on straight life insurance. Mm -hmm. He's carried about $20,000 worth of policies, so ten years or better... Um, I have the figures in my office. Mm -hmm. I gave him the prices for coverage, and he said he'd take $80,000, which would bring him up to an even $100,000. Now, Shepard's a single man. The beneficiary on his other policies is his mother, Claire Shepard. She lives over in Pawtucket. He's only dependent. He wants to name her beneficiary again.
17: I see. Now, where do matters stand with Dr. Shepard right now?
16: I told him it'd take a few days to draw the policies up. He sent me a check for the first payment and told me to do what had to be done. I don't want to act on his application until I know it's okay. Sure. Well, uh, what can you tell me about Dr. Shepard? Very little. He seems to have a good practice here in town and does his share of charity work and so on. As far as I know, he's above question. Would have to be, of course, to practice medicine here. He has an apartment above his offices, owns the building, all of his equipment.
17: Know anything about his friends? No. No. Now, let me understand this about Dr. Shepard. He called you. You didn't call him. He wanted to buy the insurance. Uh, you didn't try to sell it. That's about it, yes. And that's why I'm worried. Give me
16: 100 people, and I'll show you 99 out of that 100 who will never, never call up an insurance broker and say, I want to buy some life insurance. Yeah. People have to be sold life insurance. They'll go out and shop around for fire, theft coverage, automobile insurance, health, almost any kind. But straight life insurance, that has to be sold. On the other hand,
17: suppose Shepard is that one in a hundred. Yeah, yeah, it, it may be a perfectly legitimate situation. Yeah, Shepard may have looked into his mirror one night and said to himself, I gotta have $100,000 worth of insurance or I won't sleep a wink. Oh, yeah, it could have happened that way, Mr. Porter. But uh, I have to think of those 99 people in that hundred. Sure, sure, so do I. Well, here's to caution. Cheers. Expense account item two, $25, deposit on a rented car, which I used the following day, driving from place to place, collecting data on Dr. Charles Shepard, M.D. At his bank, I was able to learn that he enjoyed what might be called a lucrative practice, and that, like most people, he spent slightly more than he made. He belonged to a golf club where he was seldom seen. He belonged to a tennis club which he managed to make three or four times a week. Questioning the pharmacist who had the prescription counter a half block from Dr. Shepard's building and the manager of a cafeteria across the street from same, I was unable to learn who Dr. Shepard's steady companions were or gain any information that would justify his puzzling application for life insurance. Hello?
6: Good morning. Oh, good morning.
17: I'd like to see Dr. Shepard, please.
6: Do you have an appointment? No, I don't. Well, may I have your name, please? Johnny Dollar. 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 Are you a regular patient of Dr. Shepard's, Mr. Dollar? No, no, I'm not. I didn't think I recalled your name. I've been with Dr. Shepard almost five years. Uh, Who recommended Dr. Shepard? No one. Well, Well, Mr. Dollar, I'm afraid doctor's out now and won't be back until... Late this afternoon... Well, now, that's
17: funny. I was standing out in front of you three minutes ago, and I thought I saw Dr. Shepard walk in.
6: Please, Mr. Dollar, he is not in to anyone. What's your name? Why, I'm Miss Streeter. Miss Streeter. Well, yes, but I... I'd like to
17: see Dr. Shepard, Miss Streeter. Here.
6: Oh. Insurance investigator? Yes.
17: Will you tell the doctor that? Please?
6: Why, yes, I... I'm sorry I had to tell your doctor was out. He asked me to say that to everyone who came in. I'm afraid the doctor's been acting strangely all day. I'm very much concerned over him. Excuse me.
17: The tall, pale, brunette girl in the crisply-starched uniform was certainly concerned about something. She bit her lip, forced on a wan, unprofessional smile, and looked like she wanted to cry just before she disappeared beyond the reception room to seek out Dr. Shepard. I pretended not to notice that part. One minute passed, two minutes, three minutes. No one reappeared. So I pushed the door open and I looked down the corridor leading to the examination rooms and laboratory. I had to notice Dr. Charles Shepherd standing at the end of the corridor. Most of his costume was medically correct, white coat, stethoscope in one hand. But in the other hand, he brandished a 32 automatic and the safety was off.
18: Stay where you are, mister, and get your hands up. Pocket, do you keep your credentials in?
17: Left inside.
18: I'll get them. Insurance investigator.
17: For whom? At the moment, for Mr. Porter.
18: Dick? Yeah. Well, here, I, I'm sorry, Mr. Dollar. I, I guess I'm very nervous these days. Oh. Uh,
6: right. uh, Mr. Dollar, I'd like to get your address and phone number before uh, you. That's
18: all right, Corrine. Uh, Don't you think this might be a good time to go out and get a bite?
6: Well, it's a little early, Doctor. I have some lab tests. Go ahead,
18: Corinne, like a good girl, and uh, lock up, huh?
6: Yes. Goodbye, Mr. Dollar.
19: Uh, Yeah, goodbye.
18: Very fine girl, Corinne. She's been with me Five years, she told me. Oh. (laughs) I don't know how I'm going to explain meeting you in the hallway with
17: this in my hand? Uh, yes. Well, uh, before you try, suppose you snap the safety on. Oh, yes.
18: I, I look somewhat foolish, I guess. do You want to come in my office? Sure. You say Mr. Porter sent Mr. You...
17: Porter told me you made an application for $80,000 worth of life insurance. We, uh, we look into things like that, doctor.
18: Investigate me because I want to buy life insurance?
17: Yeah, yeah. You're a single man with few responsibilities.
18: Well, I don't know whether to be irritated
17: or not. Am I, am I going to get my insurance? I wouldn't be irritated, Doctor. Put yourself in the insurance company's position. They're just not used to this kind of application. Oh, you, you may get it, I don't know. But obviously you're in some kind of trouble, gun and all.
18: Well, I... You
17: know, the whole thing is a ridiculous mess.
18: Mr. Dollar, my life has been threatened by a man who has definite homicidal tendencies... I suppose I've been acting very strangely lately. I, I don't know whether to leave town or give up my practice. All you have
17: to do is pick up that telephone and call the police and tell them about it. A threat in your life comes under police business, Doctor. I
18: know that, and I would go to the police, only... Well, it's a very delicate matter. I have a patient's welfare to think of. You
17: can't very well treat any patient if you're dead. I suppose you sit down and tell me all about it.
18: All right. Several months ago, I treated a woman named Forbes. A thorough examination and consultation disclosed that her poor physical condition was not based on any organic disorder, but rather upon her own emotional instability. Not an uncommon diagnosis, this hectic day and age. You've heard of things like this, Mr. Dollar?
17: Oh, I've heard of semantics and neurotics and psychotics, but I'm not a doctor.
18: Well, let me tell you the psychotherapeutic side of medicine is by far the most challenging and one in which I've had considerable experience. Consequently, I undertook to treat Mrs. Forbes, hoping to effect a cure. Are you a psychiatrist, Doctor? No, I am not. Don't misunderstand me, Mr. Dollar. In the process of treating Mrs. Forbes' physical ailments, I urged her to recount a variety of experiences, talk to her from day to day, probing all the while for the source of her trouble. It has been my intention from the first to place her in the hands of a competent neurologist. I suspected her... Troubled early in the treatment, she's married to an erratic, ruthless, ill-tempered man, Paul Forbes. Oh. I made a grave error when Mrs. Forbes pressed me last week to... Well, I could only tell her to move out and divorce him immediately.
17: That's pretty extreme advice, Doctor.
18: I know, but I also know the advice was right. Oh, you aren't in sympathy with me, I can see, but let me tell you that any competent psychiatrist would have advised you the same. I approached her husband on the matter a few days ago. What? I explained to him that Mrs. Forbes' health, her very life, is in jeopardy, that more is involved here than just keeping intact a union which has nothing but legality as a binding force. And
17: Mr. Forbes doesn't care for semantics. He doesn't care for Mrs. Forbes,
18: Mr. Dollar. He ranted and raved and accused me of trying to break up his home, and finally he attacked me. I managed to get away.
17: Did he threaten you then? Yes, he said he'd kill me. Who else was there? What do you mean? Who heard him say these things? Why
18: Mrs. Forbes was there, and a servant in their home... Yes, a servant. Upton's his name, I believe.
17: You should have called the police.
18: I should have done a lot of things differently in my lifetime, but I didn't call the police. My primary concern is for Mrs. Forbes. Further shock and guilt complex could be totally disastrous to her. So
17: are you going to creep around here with a gun in your hand?
18: I don't know whether I'd even know how to use it. I... I... Now, why the application for all the insurance? Well, I I wondered if Forbes might get me. I wanted to be sure my mother was taken care of. I i don't know whether anyone's ever threatened your life, and you knew for certain he'd try to carry out the threat, but that is the position I am in. Well, what are you going to do? I don't know. I'll think of something. But what about my insurance? That's up to Mr. Porter. If what you say is true, I wouldn't insure you. What do you mean, if it's true? Of course it's true.
17: Doctor, I don't believe it. I left him standing there in the corridor, staring after me. A lonely man. Somehow not as frightened a man as he tried to let me believe. I wondered about that. I was still wondering about it when I went to sleep that night.
15: Now, here's our star to tell you about tomorrow's intriguing episode of this week's story. Tomorrow, the shepherd matter becomes a matter even the police can't handle.
17: Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
15: Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by John Dawson, it is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Be sure to join us tomorrow night, same time and station, for the next exciting episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, Roy Rowan Speaking. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Dick
16: Porter, Mr. Dollar. Hi. Did you check on Dr. Shepard? Yeah. Uh, do I write up his policies?
17: Well, that's up to you, Mr. Porter. Dr. Shepard's life has been threatened. What? That's according to him. And the man who threatened his life has definite homicidal tendencies, also according to Dr. Shepard.
9: Well, I... I... Well, what do you think?
17: Porter, I think Dr. Shepard's a liar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Richard Porter, 480 Webster Boulevard, Providence, Rhode Island. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Shepherd matter. More expenses, item three, 26 cents. One bottle of aspirin for Mr. Porter. I felt he was going to need it.
16: I hope you aren't trying to be funny, Mr. Dollar. I'm
17: not, Mr. Porter. I think you've got a tough decision to make. I, uh... I know that the commission on $80,000 worth of insurance would be high. Uh,
16: uh, sit down.
17: Oh, thanks. Uh, Mr. Porter, Dr. Shepard told me he bought or tried to buy all that insurance because he thought a man named Forbes was going to kill him. He bought it, he said, to make certain his mother is well provided for. He was carrying a 32 Colt. Mm. Now, he spoke of treating Forbes' wife and of advising her that divorce would settle her health problem. Mr. Forbes didn't like that and accused Shepard of trying to wreck his home and Well, that's about it.
16: Now what have we got?
17: (laughs) Well, your Dr. Shepard is either nuts or an idiot or the cleverest man alive. I don't know. I do know I believed about one half of what he told me, maybe less. what reason would he have to lie? Beats me. If someone threatened your life or mine, we'd turn to the police for help. Now, Shepard won't do that. Insists that it would probably be hazardous in the case of his patient, Mrs. Forbes.
16: I don't want to write up this policy if what he says is true. But I, I don't want to pass up the commission if it isn't true. Can you stick around town for another day or two and find out about it? I'll do what I
17: can, Mr. Porter. Go ahead. Have an aspirin. He had an aspirin, and I had a car ride. Once again, out to the offices of Dr. Shepard. The same things were more or less going on in the same way. His nurse, Miss Streeter, appeared as distraught as ever when she recognized me. There was a quick dabbing at the eyes, a straightening of the hair before she spoke.
6: Good morning, Mr. Dollar. Hello. I'd
17: like to see the doctor again.
6: He was calling Mr. Porter's office trying to locate you. I'll buzz him. Mr. Dollar, do you have anything to do with why doctor's been carrying a gun?
17: No. That's his business.
6: In other words, I should mind my business. Well,
17: I'm being honest. I've advised him what to do on the matter. What matter? He'll have to explain that to you, Miss Streeter. It doesn't make much sense to me.
6: You can go back now.
17: Okay, thanks.
18: Hello, Mr. Dollar. Hello, Doctor. You were pretty insulting yesterday. I'm sorry
17: about that, but we both have a problem to solve. And I get paid sometimes for deliberately insulting people. (laughs) You're a strange one. Do you want to change your story
18: about all this? I wish I could change it. It's still a mess, a bad mess. I thought it all out last night, and I still must hold to my original thinking. I have to place my concern for my patient, Mrs. Forbes, before anything else. In
17: other words, you won't call the police and tell them your life's been threatened. No, and you're very stubborn about that part. I don't think you comprehend the situation at all. Look, wait a minute. Let's understand each other, Doctor. If this man Forbes is all you say he is, and you say you're the expert on homicidal tendencies... Then the best thing for you to do is to prefer charges against him for threatening your life and have him locked up. Now, you could do that, according to what you've told me about Mrs. Forbes and a servant in their home witnessing his threats. I will try to explain again. I can't do that for Mrs. Forbes'
18: sake. I just can't. She's been through a shattering ordeal. I must attempt to resolve this quietly. True, I can generally anticipate a man's actions inside my office under clinical conditions, but I... Well, Forbes is different. That's why I tried to contact you today. Someone like you could approach Forbes and possibly persuade him to discard his ideas of violence. Probably do it in a quiet way, too. What does Mr. Porter pay you? Well, what's that got to do with it? I'm willing to pay you. I mean, you and I don't seem to get along very well, but I phoned Porter, and he tells me you're one of the best men in your line of business. I'll pay you to go to Paul Forbes and talk to him as I've described. <laughs>
17: I can't figure you, Doctor.
18: Now, let you and I not get into any personality arguments. Will you do this for me for your regular fee?
17: I was going to do it anyhow. For Mr. Porter and the fee, he pays me. I just wanted to check you first. I'll do it. But I still think it's a matter for the police. All right, let's leave it this way. You go talk to Forbes. If you think he means to kill me,
18: then I'll call the police and prefer charges against him, patient or no patient. How's that?
17: That sounds a little more sensible, Doctor. I took down the home address of Paul Forbes and climbed to my rented car and drove over to his home in the gilded edge of the city. A story and a half colonial with all the trimmings, lawns, trees, Plymouth convertible, a push button station wagon in the garage. It was a nice warm spring day and some flowers were blooming and smelling up the area in a very nice way. Flies buzzed, bees droned, birds sang. And I went up and pressed the doorbell. I should have gone butterfly catching or taken a plane to Spokane. Yeah? I'm looking for Paul Forbes. Does he live here? Yeah, he sure does. I'm Forbes. Mr. Forbes, my name is Johnny Dollar. Dollar? Yeah, and I came over to talk to you... You get out of my
7: way! Get
17: The front of his gun slapped against the side of my head, and I went down to my knees. A door slammed somewhere, and someone ran away. I twisted around, trying to see what it was all about. And then I managed to get to my feet, in time to see Paul Forbes plunging the Plymouth out the driveway and heading I don't know where.
19: Oh, oh my goodness, my goodness. What happened here? Uh, Where's Mr. Forbes? You hurt? Yeah, be... Oh, Miss Forbes, Miss Forbes. Hey. Oh, let me help you, sir. Here, give me your... arm. Yeah. We'd better sit you down over here. Okay, thanks. Oh, nice, my nice. goodness, my goodness gracious, sir. How did this happen? Mr. Forbes swung a gun at me. Oh, no, sir, no, sir. Oh, no, sir. No, easy, sir. Easy, nice, easy. Thanks. Let's sit down here. Oh... oh.
20: What happened
19: here? I'm afraid Mr. Forbes attacked this
17: gentleman, Miss Forbes. Oh,
20: call the doctor, Upton. Then go to my medicine chest and get some swabs and a pan of cold oh, water. Right wait, away,
17: ma'am. Wait, uh, the doctor isn't necessary. It just made me dizzy. You
20: so. cut. It might be deep. Well, get the first aid things and some brandy, Upton. Right away, ma'am. This is unforgivable, just unforgivable conduct. Please, I don't know who you are. Are you a friend of Paul's? No,
17: I'm Johnny Dollar. I, I wanted to discuss with your husband and something. I, I take it you're Mrs. Forbes.
20: Yes. Oh, Upton, uh, set them right here.
19: Yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. You feeling a little better, sir? I, I don't know yet. <clears throat> hey, let me try some of that. Yeah, certainly, sir, certainly. Here we go, sir. Uh, easy, easy now. Easy. <sighs> Thanks.
20: How does it look to you, Upton?
19: Well, I believe it's not too deep, Mrs. Forbes. How's it feel, Mr. Dollar? I I don't think it's very deep. I'll be all right in a minute.
20: Upton, go telephone Dr. Shepard and tell him to come over here immediately. Yes, ma'am. Mr. Dollar, I can't tell you how sorry I am for this. You, You can bring suit against us. You can do anything you want to, Mr. Dollar. Paul's temper is just ungovernable these days. He could have killed you. He took the car and ran. Yeah i don't know what's gotten into it two nights ago he attacked my personal physician threatened to kill him and now he's attacked you for no reason at all any
17: idea where he might have gone
20: heaven only knows mad that's what he is mr dollar he's mad
17: pauline forbes had a right to be scared from what i'd seen of her and from what i'd seen of her husband He was an angry man with a gun in his hand, slugging at anyone in sight. She was a distraught woman with a darkening spot underneath her right eye, and it wasn't mascara. I began to wonder who needed more looking after. Dr. Shepard, Mrs. Forbes, or Johnny Dollar?
19: Now, you just lie still now,
17: sir.
19: I guess you kind of fainted a little bit. Is there anything I can get you, sir? No. No. uh, Just tell me about Mr. Forbes. I beg your pardon, sir?
17: Look. I'm an insurance investigator. I came here today to talk to Mr. Forbes about threatening Dr. Shepard's life. Oh, uh, well, I, I
19: wouldn't want to talk out of turn, sir. You, you better discuss that with Mrs. Forbes.
17: Now, just one question. Did Mr. Forbes threaten Dr. Shepard's life? Yes, sir. You heard him? I did,
19: sir. He attacked Dr. Shepard here two nights ago. Did he
17: also attack Mrs. Forbes?
19: Mr. Dollar, this is an unhappy house. Things have gone all wrong here these last few months. Mr. Forbes changed. Miss Forbes, uh, well, I don't know. I, but please don't ask me to speak up against
17: anyone. I'm just trying to find out the best thing to do for everybody concerned. What can you do, sir? Well, I didn't think anything like this would happen. It's terrible, Doctor. It's terrible. This about settles
18: it. Now, I want you to go up to your room and lie down. There's no sense in your getting any more excited. I
20: want to see about Mr. Dollar first.
18: Oh, good morning, Doctor. Hello, Upton. Uh, let's have a look at this, Dollar. Uh, get that light.
15: Yes, sir.
20: Mm-hmm. How is it?
18: Well, I don't think it's anything worse than a cut. How do you feel,
19: Dollar? Oh, an aspirin might straighten me out. I hope so. After... Yes, I'll get some, <laughs> Dollar,
18: I should have taken your advice yesterday. I'm going to take it now. I'm going to call the police and have this man arrested. He might kill somebody next time. Yeah, am I all right? Sit up.
17: <sighs> Dizzy? Yeah, a little... That'll wear off.
20: What will they do to Paul?
17: Oh, they'll take him into custody and probably talk some sense to him.
20: Oh, this, this is awful.
17: You go up to your room now,
18: Mrs. Forbes. We'll handle this. Oh, Upton, uh, take Mrs. Forbes upstairs. Yes, sir. You
19: just come along, Miss Forbes. Thank you. Yeah.
18: She is not a well woman. She looks all right to me. I wish she were. Uh, I don't want to get an X-ray on that head. Can you come by the office this afternoon? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, give me the police. I doubt if it's concussion or anything like that, but it's best to play safe.
17: You're a safe player all the time, aren't you, Doctor?
18: What does that mean? I don't know. Now, look here. I'm not... Hello? Uh, yes. I want to talk to somebody about a threat on my life. I... My name is Shepard. Dr. Charles
17: Shepard. When I left him, he was reporting Paul Forbes to the police. He gave them Forbes' description and the license number of the Plymouth Forbes was driving. I didn't stay beyond that. Maybe I should have. Maybe I should never have left that house. I'm not sure, but if I hadn't left, I might have saved a life.
15: Now, here's our star to tell you about tomorrow's intriguing episode of this week's story. Tomorrow, well, the big lie is as true as
17: little green apples. Join us, won't you, when I bite into one and spit out a bullet. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
0: the plot. Those were the first two episodes of The Shepherd Matter. Here's truly Johnny Dollar from April 16th and 17th, 1956, starring Bob Bailey and featuring Parley Bear as the doctor, who in that same year had lots of steady work as Chester on radio's Gunsmoke. Did other roles, too. We'll hear the remaining three episodes of The Shepherd Matter next week. In the meantime, our next stop, Vienna with Orson Welles as Harry Lyme. This is Skywave Audio Theatre. Graham Greene wrote a novella just to prepare for writing the screenplay of what would become one of the most respected of English films, The Third Man. Orson Welles played Harry Lyme, the urbane criminal who flourished for a time in post-war Vienna. It was a city then full of desperation and intrigue, part of which was... uh, still occupied, the city was, by Soviet forces, in fact, until 1955. It was just the sort of place where black marketeering and other grifting could thrive, and certainly Harry Lyme thrived, all to the accompaniment of that most Viennese of musical instruments, the zither, played by Anton Karras. It became a big hit around 1950, the third man theme. Made more respectable for radio, Harry Lyme came back from his supposed death to swindle the swindlers in Lives of Harry Lyme. This story, as Harry will tell you, is called The Painted Smile. It comes from April 18, 1952.
14: Presenting Orson Welles as The Third Man. The Lives of Harry Lyme. The fabulous stories of the immortal character, originally created in the story The Third Man, with Zither music by Anton Karas.
21: I've got a story for you. A story about a canvas cloud, a tinseled world, and bloody murder. And if that wasn't enough, it all happened in Taormina, which is in Sicily. I know it happened because I saw it. Call the story The Painted Smile. Stick around.
14: wells as harry lyme the third man in today's story the painted smile
21: i've always had a fondness for the exception that breaks the rule maybe it's because i like to break rules myself take a smile for instance one of the intangibles of life so everyone says but what about that smile of the cheshire cats That grin hung around long after Puss had vanished. you call that intangible? Like the smile I'm going to tell you about. The horrid humor of that painted smile lingered long after the man who wore it was quite dead. As I'd come to Tarmina for a holiday, the circumstances were ideal. I had some extra cash in my pocket, the climate was fine, and the local police were completely disinterested in me. But I no sooner entered my room at the San Domenico Hotel, was testing the mattress, as a matter of fact, when a long-bladed Sicilian knife whispered past my ear and wickedly winked at me from the bedpost. Since I was naturally somewhat curious, I turned rather quickly, and standing there in the doorway was a slim man with pale brown hair, pale monkey eyes, and the face of a tragedian. Why, Tony, you old clown. Harry, you old devil,
22: what bring you to Tarmina? Eh? Money,
21: money, old friend. The climate, a certain weariness. And this happens to be one of the last places in the world where Harry Lyme is welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and you? Same old reason. The circus is playing here. A circus in Sicily? Mm-hmm. Isn't that bringing
22: coals to Newcastle, old man? Not everyone is laughing and happy in Sicily, and clowning is my business. I was born to make people laugh. A clown. Yes, you were born the greatest con man of them all. I no, know Harry. Has. I have a certain talent for crime, perhaps laid of find facility with a knife, but not the heart. I'm afraid I'm an honest man, Harry. <laughs> all the
21: more reason to be my guest tonight, Tony. Share the pleasure, my first night in Tarmina.
22: To the contrary, hmm? you shall be mine. I'll serve you Sicilian pasties for hot dogs, champagne for pink lemonade, introduce you to every freak on the midway, and seat you in a box for the main show. How would you like that, eh?
21: Yes, I'd I'd like that. Well, just this night, I'll step inside your canvas cloud, old man, pop the enchanted peanut in my mouth and enter the circus heaven of youth. (laughs) I believe every gilded angel and tinsel queen I see, smell the animals, walk the sawdust stairway to the stars. Yes, Tony, I'll be happy to accept your invitation to the circus. And who could ask for a better host than a clown? We left the midway crowd, the lights and the blaring calliope. Then the growl of jungle beasts came to me. We approached a small dressing tent. Then the clown humbly called for his friend.
22: Nola. Nola. Are you in there?
23: You again, Antonio? What is it?
22: I want to see you.
23: You will see me later. Go away.
22: But I have a surprise for you, Nola. A wonderful surprise. A surprise?
23: A present, perhaps?
21: The canvas flap snapped back and she stepped into the yellow glare of the lamps. Nola, hair as black as though it had been poured out of an ink bottle. Body, sinuous, graceful. Like a cat's. She was like a cat. And her ice-grey eyes flared strangely when she looked at me.
23: So this is your wonderful surprise, Antonio.
21: Nola, this is Harry
22: Lyme, my friend.
23: I'm always happy to meet a friend.
21: The way she said it, the way she was looking at me, made it seem like we were all alone, just Nola and me. I know a kind of female. I also knew that Tony was in for a bad time. Funny thing, he knew it too. Told me about it a little later while he was putting on his clown makeup. So you feel sorry for me, Harry. Harry. Well, I don't feel one way or the other about anyone, but if you fancy Nola for yourself, you're a chump, old man. I know, I know. Oh? And you like to be kicked in the teeth, is that it?
22: Look at me, my friend. What is there about me for a woman to love? There is a great deal about Nola to love.
21: Mm Mm-hmm. To Maya to desire, yeah. To love? Uh Uh-huh.
22: You're forgetting something? I am. All clowns suffer, Oh yes, paint a smile on their face to hide a broken heart. Ah, really, old man, don't be (laughs) trite. Noel is like a fever in the blood, a disease. She's not good for me, perhaps, but the pain of loving her is better than the ecstasy of loving any other woman.
21: I agree with you, Tony. You never, never would have made a good confidence man.
22: You think the clown white has gone deeper than my face? That my thinking has become as theatrical as my profession? Perhaps, perhaps. Ah, but well, the show is about to begin. Help me with my wig, Harry.
21: There oh, you are.
22: Now, ah, am I not the funny man?
21: Yeah, very funny.
22: See you later, my friend. Now, Antonio must go to clown and dance like a puppet.
21: Well, Nola pulls the strings. Hmm? Laugh, clown, laugh. You poor schmoo. It wasn't a very big circus, but it looked like the greatest thing on earth to the folks in town, either. They laughed at friends and they still by moved and awed at the trapeze performers and gasped at Nola's animal. Then came the grand climax.
10: Senoria, eh, senoria! You are seeing the beautiful Nola command the tigers, the fumas, the lions, like they were house kittens. Now you shall see the unbelievable! Antonio, the great clown, shall enter the cage of the black puma and make him
21: dance. And he did. He did. Going into the main animal cage, Tony pantomimed his bravery to the crowd. He cracked his whip, he strutted, he he proved to himself at least that he was afraid of nothing on four legs. Then a smaller cage was rolled in and opened on the main cage, and another clown in the costume of the black puma sprang inside with Tony. First, my friend was terrified, then he saw the Pumas as frightened as he, and they made friends and waltzed around the cage together as the audience screamed with mirth. It was as simple as that. But Tony's clowning was touched with genius. In his performance, there was all the posturing and heartbreak and fear of the world. And by conquering his fear in the shape of the Puma, he put a happy ending to his story, and everybody went home happy. was everybody but Tony. I saw him after the show waiting for Nola as she ran up from the main tent. Still carrying her animal, but. Nola!
22: Nola! Get out of my way! But Nola, I must talk. Take to your you. hands off
24: me. Let me go!
21: Her whip, cruel and quick as a puma's claw, cut across his face. I could see a livid wheel rising under his clown white. But Tony took it. Took it silently. Just looked after Nola with big eyes. Then he saw me. Thanks for the show, Tony. It was swell, but uh, the rest of the night's on me. Now, let's do Taormina, hmm? Like men.
22: You, you will excuse me tonight, my friend. Tomorrow I'll come to the hotel. Tomorrow.
21: I went back to my monastic cell to do some thinking. I say cell, call it that, because the Hotel San Domenico, Taormina was in the 16th century a monastery. And now in the twentieth century, it's a very unmonk-like character who walked its sacred tiles and pondered on human passion. And then I had no reason not to answer the door. Yeah. Oh, hello. She was small, very young, very dewy. You know, the moonlight for hair and stars for eyes, sort of thing.
24: You are Mr. Harry Lyme? I am. I am Therese.
21: Oh, that's enchanting.
24: You will invite me in? I would speak with you.
21: Well, uh, <laughs> I can't imagine a more satisfactory conversation.
24: I will sit here.
21: If you like. It's all very femme fatale and very intriguing, but... Uh, just how do you happen to know my name?
24: I asked the manager.
21: Hmm. Now they do make things easy, as so I mean, I don't
24: think.
21: What? It's unimportant.
24: I just arrived at the hotel a while ago. I am staying here, too. Alone? Oh, yes. I see. You do know Antonio Vega?
21: Antonio? Oh, the sly dog. You're another one of his girls, is that it?
24: I am his only girl. Oh,
21: of course, of course.
24: I am his daughter.
21: <laughs> oh.
24: The manager told me that Papa was here to see you this afternoon. He said you were his old friend. <laughs> Is that so funny?
21: No, no, don't start that again.
24: I came to you, Mr. Lyme, because I could not find Papa. He wrote to me he was going to be here. He is a traveling salesman, a tra- you know. Oh, no. So when school closed for vacation, instead of staying there as usual, I thought I'd come here and surprise Papa.
21: Papa and me, hmm?
24: Hasn't he told you about me?
21: Uh, yes, yes, he course.
24: Then oh, you know oh. where he is. I can go to him.
21: Well, uh, as it so happens, your father's coming to the hotel tomorrow, my dear. Why don't you wait for him here and really surprise him,
24: hmm? What a wonderful idea. Oh, Mr. Lyme, I could kiss you. Oh, no. <laughs>
14: Harry Lime returns in just a moment. And Wells as Harry Lyme, the third man, continues in today's story, The Painted Smile.
21: Teresa didn't know her father's real profession any more than I'd known Tony. had a daughter. My clown friend was beginning to interest me more and more. A man of many lives, one of those still-waters-run-deep boys. And in spite of the sheltered life he'd lavished on Teresa, she'd walked into the finest emotional trap the devil himself could set. What to do? I breakfasted with the young lady on the terrace. Well, they're popular, they're public. Harry, is that you? Oh, oh, pardon me, you are busy. Papa!
9: Oh, Papa!
24: Therese?
21: Oh, kiss her, Tony, go on. I'm sure I would if I had such a daughter.
24: Oh, it's so wonderful to see you, Papa. Be with you again. But the
22: kitten, you you should have stayed at the school.
24: You are not glad to see me? Of
22: course, of course, my darling. but, But my work, you know, I... I have so little time. That is why I always visited you, instead of you coming to see me.
24: If it's only one little minute of the day, it's worth it, Papa. Just to be near you. Don't
21: have a heart, Tony. She'll have me in tears.
24: Your cheek. Oh, Papa. What happened to your poor cheek? A terrible scar. Uh,
21: It was an
22: accident, Therese. Another reason why you must not stay. It is impossible. You understand the situation, oh, Harry? Sure, what situation?
24: Man, I... Why should not a daughter be with her papa?
22: It is impossible. You will go back to school like a good girl, yes? Or to the relatives in Naples? No! Therese?
24: No! No, no, no!
9: I will never leave you! Even if you don't want me around!
21: Well, just who won that round, Tony, old man? What can I do, my friend?
22: Why I'll tell her the truth? And bring her shame? Therese thinks of me as a businessman, dignified, honorable. What would she say if her father told her that he was a clown? Well, you're going to have to tell her something. I said I was an honest man, my friend. That isn't true.
21: Well, what do you do? Pick the pockets of the other clowns? I smuggle emeralds. Again? I smuggle emeralds. It was for her,
22: Harry. Therese. How could I support her in such a fine fashion? Good clothes, private schools, on the earnings of a clown in a wandering circus.
21: I haven't thought about it much, didn't even know your kitten existed, you see. That is
22: one of many things I haven't
21: told you, my old friend. Forgive me. Forgiven, but the uh, the emeralds... You see,
22: I've been very successful in the smuggling trade, but very careful. Over the years, I've saved a small fortune. And now I want to ask you a favor. For the fortune... Anything, old man, for the fortune. It's for Therese when she reaches 21. If anything should happen to me before, see that she gets it.
21: Why be so morbid?
22: The way things are lately, you know, Harry, with my life, with Nola, I think my luck's changed.
21: Well, how do you know I won't keep the fortune for myself, old man? The same way I know you won't inform on me to the police. (laughs) You you figure this pot's too smart to call the kettle black, is that it, That's one way of
22: putting it. (laughs) Come Uh, to the circus tomorrow night, Harry. I'll show you where my savings are hidden.
21: Mm. And
22: Therese? Therese, I will think of something. Ah, Better her heart should break a little now than learn the truth about me and then... I'll
21: meet you tomorrow night, Tony. I didn't like the way things were going. Not that Harry Lyon's is averse to learning the exact location of a man's fortune, but this particular collection of moolahs seemed to have... Only too many strings attached to it. However, I decided to let tomorrow take care of itself. I was deep in the arms of Morpheus when... Oh. <sighs> yeah. Yes. What the devil you mean, waking a man up in the middle of the night?
25: That is Mr. Lime, Mr. Harry Lime.
21: Yeah, uh, who's calling?
25: This is Signor Borgia, questore of Taormina, Department of Public Safety. The police? And it is not midnight, Mr. Lyme, but nine o'clock in the morning.
21: Well, that's a matter of opinion, uh, sir.
25: You will do me the great favor of coming to my office within the hour... Well,
21: I'll Mr. do nothing I... of the sort, uh, Borgia. As I told you... You
25: will I... come, or you will become come for. You are already under surveillance.
21: Well, I'll do you the great favor, Questori uh, Borgia.
25: Your generosity is exceeded only by your wisdom, Signor. within the hour.
21: I never argue with a policeman over the telephone, beyond a certain point. And when he bears the name of Borgia... Well, when in Tarmina, do what the tar-maniacs do, I suppose. I visited the questore. I found him a small, alert man, all spit and polish. He eyed me like a hungry robin views a fat world. Sit down.
25: Sit down, signor Lime. You are a friend of Antonio Vegas? Oh, Antonio must have... must have many friends, I should think. Too many. At one time, this Vegas was in your profession. A confidence man. Tony's a good clown. And a smart one. His buffoon makeup hides more than the proverbial broken heart, doesn't it? Does it? Vegas heads a smuggling ring, emeralds. Are you trying to tell me you know nothing about the traffic?
21: I've never dabbled in emeralds, Borja, old man. They're too hot for my blood. You
25: refuse to admit that you are in partnership with Vegas? If what you said is true, well, I wish I was. Do not try to warn your friend. He will never leave Taormina. Well, they're the worst places to live. Good morning, Signor life. Good morning. Does that mean I can go now?
21: It does. Well, am I still under surveillance? Yes. Why? Oh, my holiday mood, that's all, old man. I hope your bloodhounds are broad minded. Good morning. is it that I always get into these things? Here I was about to do Tony a favor. And there's no profit in it for me at all. Well, I went to his dressing room that night and he showed me his fortune, all tucked away under a false bottom of his costume trunk and all in American bills of high denomination. It's a pity to see it lying just doing nothing. Ah, now that you know where the money is hidden, I'll
22: replace the bottom.
21: Tony, old boy, I still say I'm in this it's not my kind of kind of caper send the nest egg to the relatives in naples hmm?
22: i don't trust them Oh, you know how it is with good people southern wealth may change their natures completely whereas you say no more old man (laughs) and here is something else for you to see hidden in this bladder i
21: use for one of my props emeralds perfectly cut some of them are as big as robin's eggs Ideally, in nothing but the finest merchandise. Evidently. Uh, who's your fence? Lazzetti. Huh? Oh, the best. I find him to be the best. Tony, you're one of the few men I've ever underestimated. Who would suspect the clown? Yes, but I must warn you, Tony, that there are, are some who.
24: You say Mr. Vegas is in this case. Si, signore.
21: Therese. Yes, she must have followed me here. Quick, help me hide these. Yeah.
24: Papa! I have found you.
22: Yes, Therese, you have found me. And now you know what your father
21: really is. He's the best... A
24: clown. I think it is too wonderful. Oh, Papa, did you think I would look down on you because you were a clown in a circus? It is much finer than a travelling salesman. You are angry because I found you out?
21: Why should you? What can I do, Harry? Well, I guess give her a pass to the show. <laughs> I'll take charge of her.
24: Oh, thank you. Thank you. What can I do oh, to am I
22: intruding,
24: Antonio?
22: Nola.
21: There were no introductions. I took Teresa out of there as soon as possible, but before we left, I caught Nola's eyes on the emeralds. They narrowed like a cat's. The lady knew her way around gems as well as men, and that bothered me. The climate of Charmina had suddenly become very unhealthy. I would have quit the place that night if Borgia's bloodhounds hadn't been guarding every point of exit.
24: Why is Papa going into that animal cage, Mr. Lyft?
21: Oh, it's nothing. He's he's pretending to he's a cat trainer, you know, like Nola. (laughs) You know, see how brave he is.
24: Oh, oh, how funny he is. Yeah. How wonderful is my Papa.
21: Oh, great. Tony's funniest routine began. He was giving the greatest performance of all his life because he was in the audience. The puma cage was wheeled up to the main cage and the door opened. Out came the puma. But no costume found this one. A very large, very live and very vicious cat sprang into Tony's cage. and stood there a moment, lashing its tail and blinking in the lights. In that moment, before it sprang at my old friend, I saw Nola's face watching from the tent entrance. Her eyes wide, her lips drawn back in an animal smile. Her hands stretched before her like claws, as if she were about to attack.
9: Look.
21: I was glad to see the police. Puma was shot and killed, Nola was apprehended. What was left of Antonio Vegas was taken to the hospital tent. As I said, he found a way out of Tarmina. The hard way.
22: No, don't. Don't cry, kitten. It was an accident.
24: No. It was no accident like the scar on your cheek. She did it. She did it. I did nothing. It was an accident.
26: Somebody switched the cages.
21: What do you mean? Well, questore Borgia, I think I can prove differently. It wasn't an accident at all. He lied. Antonio Vegas is my friend, signora. You can understand that word, friend. Why should I lie? I saw you switch the cages deliberately.
9: No, no, I did not. I did not.
21: And I know why you did. Harry, it was because of jealousy.
24: Jealous of that clown, stupid,
9: <laughs> stupid! You shall not laugh at my papa. Your, your papa? Thank you, thank you, Harry. <laughs>
14: The returns in just a moment. And now, Harry Lyme.
21: I think somebody before me once pointed out that women are very curious creatures. You take Lola, for instance. Lola was quite prepared to murder the man she loved, just out of a fit of jealousy. Some women, of course, indulge in a more refined and less dangerous form of vengeance. They arrange matters for the men they love so that life just seems like death. I sometimes wonder what life would be like without women. So quiet and peaceful. And so very, very dull.
0: Orson Welles as Harry Lyme in The Lives of Harry Lyme, reprising his role from the film The Third Man, with a story called The Painted Smile from April 18, 1952. For some reason, in the radio series, Harry kept running into these soppy females. Well, no such person in the weird circle, I suspect. We'll find out next on Skywave Audio Theatre. Short story master Guy de Maupassant wrote this week's story from the Weird Circle. He wrote several stories involving hair and its various aspects, and uh, this is one of them. It begins harmlessly enough with a friend asking for a favor, just to go into a room and retrieve a book. But as it turns out, the room is not just any room. The book is not just any book. And the writer of the book is the possessor of a very strong will. We'll call the story The Rope of Hair. It comes to us from the Weird Circle of April 16, 1944.
8: tale, The Rope of Hair.
2: I am often puzzled by the three processes, love, hate, and death, which perhaps more than the others influences our minds. I have learned but little more of them in my life. Perhaps the words and secrets of the three were in the diary in the old chateau. I have never known that. But I have learned fear. I have become afraid of the night. It was long ago when I was in garrison at Rouen. I was walking one evening along the quay... ...when I observed a man who looked up at me... ...from thoughtful contemplation of the slowly moving water. I hesitated... Surprised at something, some recognition in his eyes. Victor. Yes? Victor, don't you know me? Why, Jacques, can it be you, Jacques Lafontaine? Yes, Victor, of course. Well, Jacques, I, I can't believe it, really, you. Then even my oldest friend doesn't know me. But it's been so long, Jacques, so long since our last meeting. It's it's uh, five years since Jean de Roque's ball. It's changed me, then. Well, at first I didn't recognize you, but in five years... In five years, most people don't grow gray and stoop, do they, Victor? I hated the thought of coming to you like this. But as officers, we must soon have had business together anyway. Then you haven't even heard that... Heard what? That I had resigned my commission, left the glory of our country in the hands of the dead. you had a fine career ahead of you. Your position, your influence, they pointed to everything ahead. And now perhaps everything is behind, is that it, Victor? Oh, life is never as bitter as that. For men as young as we, a great deal lies ahead.
25: For a man who has written his own destiny in one moment? No.
2: What's happened, Jack? Can't you tell me? Perhaps supper, a little entertainment. The city will be lively tonight. It'll do you good to forget your trouble. Thank you, Victor, but we've been walking toward my rooming house. I hoped you might dine with me. We can talk quietly there. Because we're old friends, yes. For anyone else, though, well, the evening is young and there are other things to do in the city. Just this one evening. Can't you, Victor? If that's what you want, Jock, my time is yours. Sir. Good. Here. Hmm?
16: This is the place,
2: here. This? I. I know it's not a good section of the city. The place is run down, but it's comfortable. And with your soldiers quartered here, it was hard to find any place to stay at all. Come on in. Mm, Let me follow you, Jacques. It's so dark in here, I can't see where to go.
10: I'll get the candle. There.
2: Now, come on up this way. My room is right here at the top of the stairs. This door. Well,
10: go on, open it. What's the matter? Shh.
2: What is it, Jacques? I don't oh, know. Here, here, let me have the candle. It'll shake out of your hand. Uh, now, what's happened? There's something. Somebody in there. Well, open the door and find out. Perhaps, perhaps we'd better not. If there's somebody in your room, we'll find out who it is. No, no, Victor, please. Well, please, Victor. What's frightening you so?
26: Oh. Oh. Oh, what? good evening, monsieur. Oh. Mrs. Dupre. Yes, monsieur, did I startle you? You see, it was time for supper, so I brought it up to you, monsieur. I lit the candles in your room. I know yes. that you...
2: Yes, thank you, Mrs. Dupre, and bring
16: another, please. The captain's dining with me.
26: But certainly, monsieur, immediately, monsieur. Come in. Come in, Victor. We'll wait just
2: a few minutes until she comes back. <laughs> I, I think your Mrs. Dupre was as frightened as you were. Do you always frighten each other? No. No, it was just that I didn't expect... Jacques, to... seriously, huh? what's on your mind? Certainly you aren't living in this in this place from choice. It's so near your own chateau. Why aren't you there? That's what I wanted to talk to you about, Victor. Well, if it's money, Jacques, why say so? You know you needn't go through all this. I'll It's more help. than money. Well, then, love? Love, Victor? In the circle of things, where does hate end and love begin can you answer that did you want me to come up here to talk riddles Jacques? well it was love Victor the most beautiful woman in the world well come on out with it don't just sit there picking at the front of your tunic as though you were covered with dog hairs what's this all about I... what ever since we sat down you've been pulling imaginary hairs out of your jacket there can't you sit still for a minute and relax oh was I Oh, I'm sorry, Victor, but... But you see, I'm going to ask a favor of you that I'd hate to ask anyone else. Anything you say, Jacques. You see, several years ago, right after you last saw me, I was married to the most beautiful woman in the world.
25: Oh, life was a sweet thing. We were the happiest couple in France.
10: And what happened?
25: She died, Victor. She died, and now she's dead and rotting in her grave. That's what death does to people, isn't it, Victor?
2: She died just one year after I'd married her. Just one year of terrible
14: happiness. Terrible because I guess no man has a right to so much...
25: Well... On the day she died... I locked the door to our room... Left
2: the chateau... And as you see, Victor, I can never make myself go back... And you want something? Would you do it? Would you go back to my... To our room there, Victor? What do you want me to do? In the right-hand drawer of the desk in our room,
14: there is a book. A diary, which right now can mean more to me than anything else in the world. You'll know it because on it, it's marked with my crest across the front. Will you go? I'll go tomorrow. I'll be free there.
10: <sighs> I'll wait here until you come back with it.
26: Oh, Victor. Victor. Your supper, monsieur. Oh. I've brought it up as quickly as I could. Will that be all right, monsieur? You see the... Uh, Just
14: put it on the table, Mrs. Dupre.
26: Thank you. There, monsieur. I hope you enjoy it, monsieur. Victor. Hmm? Sit
2: down there. I'll write a note to the caretaker at the chateau and get you the keys to the room and to the desk. Hasn't he the keys? No one has a key to that room but me. Why, Jacques? Is it haunted? No! Oh, come, come, Jacques. Your nerves are all on edge. Um,
9: Let's go out.
8: There's a little place Oh, No,
2: thank you, Victor. I'll stay here until tomorrow. Tomorrow when you come back with the diary. I left him then, sunk into that attitude of deep concentration I had noticed as he stared into the dark waters of the Seine. For a while, I forgot, Jacques the strange depression and fear that marked his attitude had shocked me. The way he sat, almost afraid to speak, plucking those imaginary hairs from the front of his tunic like a weak, frightened child. Not like the stalwart, ambitious young man I had known as a companion in boyhood. A young man, if ever there was one, destined to become the pride of his regiment. In the morning, my ride across the fields and through the cool summer woods somehow filled me with an intoxicating happiness. I took with me for a companion, a Lieutenant Laroc, a friend of mine from the regiment. And I was thankful later for his sensible company. But in the exhilaration of the moment, I almost forgot the gloomy implications of my trip. There's that old chateau, Captain. Have you noticed it before? That's where we're going. To that place? Yes, I have an errand there. You know the place, then? Oh, I've passed by it several times. Never stopped. I thought it was deserted until the other day when I saw an old man standing by the gate. Caretaker, isn't he? I guess so. He threw stones at one of my soldiers who tried to stop for water. Chased him away before he could get inside the gates. I almost had to have the man thrown in jail to calm the soldier's feelings. Well, he's not on guard today. He's not at work either. Look at the condition of this place. The gate's practically rusted off its hinges. I can remember when this lawn was as smooth as velvet. Every path was well kept. But it's not my worry. Oh, where is this confounded caretaker anyway? I'll seek you.
10: Hey there! No sign of life? I'll join you. Is anybody here? Try another door, Leroc. Yes, sir. I'll try this one around
2: the side. Well? You the caretaker? Yes, I am Pierre. What is it you want? I have a letter here. Well, there's no one here. Can't you see that? This place is deserted. The letter is for you. Well, then, give it here. See here, you. Take off your hat when you're addressing an officer. Never mind, Leroy. Let him read the letter. I'm anxious to get this over. (laughs) Military dignity doesn't have much place here. What's that? Uh, it once did. This was the proudest house in Normandy. Never mind, Pierre. Read the letter. Well, I have read it. Well? Well... What do you want? You ought to know. Your master's orders are there. I want to enter the chateau. Are you going into his room? Are you trying to put me through an examination? But, but, well, I'll go and see if it is prepared, if it is all right. That won't be necessary. But, uh, it has not been entered since, since the death. I'd better see you But whether... you see, Pierre, I have the key and you have not. Now step back. Let us go through. Yes, Captain. Right through my kitchen there, that door enters the main hall. Come on, Lerac. Coming, sir. This door, Pierre? Yes, Captain. Through there and up the stairs. Oh, look, Captain. Look at the size of this hall. Yes, Lerac. And look at the dust. Must be half an inch thick on that table. You know, it must have been magnificent here once. I knew it well when it was... Uh, Here, the stairs are over here. Uh, Let's go up. Somehow I don't like the place so much now. Oh. (laughs) The old man has shut the door down there. (laughs) I don't think he likes us very much. We're just invading his privacy, that's all. Anybody'd be strange stuck in this place. Well, I certainly wouldn't like it. Mm. Uh, This is the door, I think. Well, the air hasn't been changed in here for years. What's that? Mm. Smells like a tomb. It's dark enough to be one.
10: I'll open that shutter over there. All right, it's stuck, Captain. Never mind. My eyes
2: are getting used to the dim light now, anyway. rock, Yes, Captain. You'd better go stand guard outside the door so that our real menace, the caretaker, doesn't come up and interrupt us. I'll get the diary I'm after, and we'll get out of here. Very well, Captain. I'll shut the door so you won't be disturbed. I was trying to sound brave. There are times when the uniform of a captain forces courage. But I did feel better with Lorac guarding the door. A draft from the still-shuttered window was beginning to freshen the atmosphere. I opened the drawer of the desk and began fumbling among the litter of papers there. I found the diary just as Jacques said I would in a plain packet with his crest on the face of it. A crest that had been the bravest in France. The breeze from the window stirred the hangings behind me, but engrossed as I was in finding the diary, I paid but little attention to the stirring in the room.
23: Yes, there it is. You have really come for it. But you are not Jacques. I shall try to remember... He should have come, not you. No, you are not Jacques, but you will do as well.
2: For endless time, I say, we faced each other there, but only for a moment, really. The woman seated herself in a chair. Her white garment made no sound as she put her hand to her head. She tried to stroke the long black hair that hung almost to the floor. It was black, but with a blackness that has no light, no life. In her other hand, she had a comb. She held it toward me.
23: Monsieur, you can do me a great service. I am suffering. Oh, I am suffering so. They will not comb my hair. You will comb my hair. You will comb my hair. Oh, I am suffering.
2: I took the comb from her hand and lifted that long hair. That hair which gave my skin a feeling of awful cold. A feeling of handling snakes. Cold. Cold and dead. The feeling still clings about my fingers. I handled that icy hair, I twisted it, I braided it, I bound it and unbound it. And while I let that horrible mane run through my fingers, she sighed and, trance-like, began to talk, forgetting, perhaps, that I was not Jacques.
23: Ah, that's better. The mirror is gone now. The mirror in which I watched you so many times, combing my hair. ha. <laughs> And with what adoration in your eyes. Your brave, strong fingers playing there in the hair of a weak woman. So brave, so strong. Jacques loves me. Jacques loves me. That was the song that my heart sang when first we were here like this. I love Jacques. I love Jacques. That was the song I thought was echoed back. Pride and strength and killing. Yes, I saw you kill, Jacques. Once I saw you kill for power. Power, strength, pride, being a soldier, being strong, they were your idols. What does a weak woman want of those things? When you brought me here, Jacques, my head was high. My pulses beat with joy at the peace and happiness I expected. But you'd always been strong, Jacques. Always strong and brutal with the strength you adored. Then when I saw you kill Jacques, I knew that the fascination of hate was my love. Hatred of you, of whom I need fear nothing because you loved me. Hate, not love. I was fascinated too, Jacques, when I wrote these things. Wrote them in that diary you're taking. Wrote of my hatred and my growing fear of you. Then that day, I watched you in the mirror as you braided my hair. Braided it into a strong rope. And because I'd written that I hated you, slip it slowly. So slowly and calmly over my head and around my neck. (laughs) <laughs> but you will never do it again, will you, Jacques? Because now, Jacques, you're going to comb it free again. comb it free when I come to you for that diary. Yes, Jacques is going to comb it free again. I shall come for the diary, Jacques
10: A rock!
2: A rock. What is it, Captain? This closet door. That woman went in there. For the love of heaven, open it quickly. But, Captain, it's locked, bolted outside, here. Can't be. She went in there. Who? That woman who was here. Well, no one came in here, so perhaps it was a
10: shadow. No, to... no, LaRock. I saw her. I heard. Can I be mad? I- I'll break that shutter, Captain. We'll have
2: some light. And the closet door was bolted. In the light that flooded the room, I began to feel foolish. There was no sign, no indication, except for an overturned chair, that I had not been alone the whole time. With more calmness than I felt, we descended the great stair, crossed the huge, dusty hall, and were at last out in the fresh air. We did not see Pierre again when we left the chateau. We drew rein before my lodgings. The groom took our horses. Well, sir, the ride has been very pleasant. Captain, do you feel all right? Rock, I'm going up to my room. I I need a rest. Will you Will you deliver this diary to my friend? Here's the address. Tell him anything you like. Tell him I'm ill, sunstroke, anything at all. I, I'll see him later. Of course, Captain. Oh, just a moment, sir. What is it? Why are you looking at the front of my coat like that? Why those hairs? Hairs? H- yes, Captain. All twisted in the buttons. They're long and black, like a woman's. Yes. There were the same dead long hairs twisted in the buttons of my jacket. I pulled at them, every nerve in my body revolting at the cold feeling. Slowly, one by one, I pulled them off, dropping them from my fingers like poisoned things.
10: Can I help you, Captain? Could he help me?
2: No, but there was another he could help. I remembered how Jacques had sat like a bashful child pulling at the imaginary hairs in the front of his coat, begging me to get that diary to him. No, Lerac. But take this diary to my friend quickly. Quickly, Lerac. Yes, sir was better in my room. Somehow I could think there. But Jacques, his fear and his worry haunted me. A few hairs still clung to my jacket. Absently, I pulled them out and dropped them from the window, every nerve in my body revolting at their cold feeling. Then, with a sudden resolve, I went into the street again and headed toward Jacques's lodgings. I knew that I had to talk to him about what had happened. I hurried across the city. Leroc came toward me a few steps from Jacques' house. Captain, have you delivered the diary already, Leroc? I left it in his room, Captain. The gentleman wasn't at home. Not there. He promised to wait until I got back. The room was empty. The concierge had not seen him go out, Captain, but she had been in the basement and he might have slipped out without her seeing him. Very well, Rock. I'll go and see you. Do you wish me to come, sir? No, no, no. You go on. I'll wait for him to come back. Very well. It's that house right there, sir. That house right there. That house right there. As though I wouldn't know that dirty doorway, those warped steps... Every detail of the last 24 hours seemed to have fixed itself like an etching in my brain.
10: Yes, monsieur? I must see monsieur Jacques.
26: Monsieur Jacques! But he's not in, monsieur. There was another gentleman just a few minutes ago. He must be here. Let me in. But monsieur... He must be. But monsieur, I tell you that he's... Uh, This is his door,
2: isn't
9: it? He's
26: not in,
2: monsieur. Uh, We'll see about that. Jacques, be quiet. Stand there.
26: He's dead. Oh, monsieur, he's dead. In my house.
2: His hand is cold. Is there a doctor near here?
26: Yes, monsieur. I'll call him.
2: Jacques was sitting huddled in the chair, a surprised look on his face. But he was white. White and somehow shriveled. I looked around for the diary which Laroque had delivered, but it was not to be seen. Some touch of the fear I had felt in facing the woman at Jacques Chateau chilled me again. After only a moment, I heard voices outside in the passageway.
26: It is here, monsieur. Right. A gentleman came and we found him so... Oh, on, take me in now. It doesn't seem it could be possible. It was only a few minutes ago, and I, I saw with my own eyes that monsieur Jacques was not in his room. It could not be. Be quiet, please. It isn't possible.
9: Quiet,
2: please. Pardon, monsieur. What has happened here? I don't know anything more than she has told you. We came in and found him this way, in the chair. Mm. Let's see. His pulse? Yes, he's dead, no doubt of that. His hand's
10: cold already. There was no way in the which... The man must have
2: led an active life. He was not very old, and yet... The doctor leaned, peering over Jacques's body. His hand reached out slowly toward the front of the coat. He plucked at one of the buttons. Here... What do you
10: suppose this is? Why, it's a hair. Long, black hair. And there are more of them. Almost as though he had been combing a woman's hair when he died.
23: Look, monsieur. Still more of them. Around his neck.
2: I knew then that it had been no shadow I had seen at the chateau. I had heard the threatening words... And she had come for the diary at last.
8: From the time worn pages of the past, we have brought you the story, The Rope of Hair. Bellkeeper,
25: toll the bell.
0: Story about a wife who will uh, not accept the brush off, literally, try to get rid of that rope of hair on your coat, and good luck. Our story was based on the work of innovator Guy de Maupassant, and it came from the Weird Circle of April 16, 1944. Next week, we'll finish The Shepherd Matter with yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and we'll have some other adventures in sound. I'm Norman Gilliland, and I hope you can be with me then for more from Skywave Audio Theatre.